they're talking about models of human capital investment, new models of human capital investment. Um, <clears throat> also on this image, but they talk about prenatal university, technologies in prenatal education, like stimulating children in the womb. Um, uh, education uh, toolboxes where your personal data uh, make recommendations for you. So if you understand that maybe your access to education is going to be predicated even on your genomics, they were talking about student genetic passports, because a lot of what's coming is actually steeped in a eugenics, this early social progressivism eugenics movement. They speak of um, people nares, literally that you would have like billionaires, but they would be made up of portfolios of human beings. Ready to live at the higher vibrations, where peace, love, joy, and good health are the daily standard? That's what this show is all about. Welcome to Vibe. And here's your host, Robin Openshaw. Hey everyone, Robin Openshaw here. Welcome back to the Vibe Show. I think I'll also be publishing this to the Utah Patriot Update show for Utahns. I am really excited today to introduce you to Allison McDowell because if you've been hanging around on this show for any length of time, I just did a informally named Allison McDowell for Dummies three-part series. So if you have listened to that, um, I spent about 20 hours watching talks that Allison has given and I took 45 pages of notes and I'm not kidding. I took 45 pages of notes. And then I did, I spent a whole day and I did a three-part series to try to dumb it down for you because she uses jargon and she has a command of some of these industries, like a command of the jargon, the, the, the acronyms and the organizations involved in, in um, so many of these uh, industries that are involved in what I consider to be the consolidation of wealth and power from the many to the few that we're in the middle of right now. And I'm just really excited to bring you this amazing, extraordinary researcher herself, uh, who has, I bet she's done thousands of hours of research. We'll let her tell you about it. And she's going to do, she's going to do a PowerPoint. So those of you who are watching by video can see the PowerPoint. Um, but she's going to try to do her best to describe what she's showing on the screen for those of you who are listening by audio. I mostly just listen to things on my phone. And so I can, I can never see her slides. So I was like, yes, please tell us. Um, throw in some tidbits about Utah and all her talks that I've seen have been three hours, but she says that she's been doing so many talks that she's going to compress it to two hours. So I'm really not going to interrupt. I'm going to let her fly. Welcome to the vibe show. Tell us about you and how you got involved in this and then just take it away. Allison McDowell. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you so much. Um, yeah. So I'm, I'm based in Philadelphia and I, I sort of might, my general bio is I'm a mom and I'm an independent researcher. And I sort of came into all of this from a slightly unusual route. Like it was actually through the public school system. So my child is now in, in college, but we had 13 years in a an urban school district that was intentionally defunded and sort of subject to a lot of these sort of financial forces, including um, technological surveillance and, and other things that really gave me an education into how the world works. So unlike, I think many people operating in the space who are, might have come in through other angles like geopolitics, um, mine was just, I was a mom and I, I was fighting high stakes standardized testing in school and, and the technology and sort of the overreach of that and the dehumanization. And then I ended up uh, really down in some a lot of rabbit holes because a, a lot of the 
the work I ended up doing was around finance, human capital finance that emerged out of the University of Pennsylvania, uh, which is where I live here in Philadelphia. So I'm just a mom. I've been doing this. I have a blog. It's called wrenchinthegears.com, wrench like the tool. And I have a lot of talks on YouTube. So I will say um, I will do my best. It's sort of like an immersion course. <laughs> and I think a lot of people who find what I talk about intriguing sort of dive in and, and spend that time um, to do it. I, I wish I could find an easier way to explain it, but it's almost like adding a whole nother layer of your understanding onto the world and every single part of how you interact with it. So it's hard to, to really narrow it down, but it's, I'm, I'm hopefully going to give you some tools to think about things. And then I encourage you, if you want to know more to go to my YouTube channel, which at the moment, it's still up. It's Allison McDowell um, at YouTube. I think I probably need to get things backed up in other places at this point. But um, yeah, this, so I put together some slides today. I wasn't sure exactly um, trying to figure out. I've had a lot of different kinds of talks, talks about holistic health and the weaponization of that, uh, talks about the schools, talks about um, uh, the digital past systems, you know, talks about a lot of different things. Um, so this one I thought today I would really um, hit hard on some of this concept of augmented reality, sort of the gamification of life in this technological construct and, you know, how that plays into financial markets and biotech a little bit. And, uh, you know, I, I wish I had a better handle on all of my slides, but I have to say I, my opening slide here is um, I, I spent actually a last minute invitation to go up to New York as part of the, the Freedom Rally. So I was one of the invited speakers to participate in the Union Square Rally, um, which was an amazing gathering. And then it was followed by uh, another gathering on Sunday, a, a picnic event um, in the Central Park. And it was just it was like one of the first days of spring and really um warm and clear skies and uh, just a really amazing, loving, diverse crowd of people who who came to speak about what we've been living through the past year and uh, including Holocaust survivors and women of color and myself. And we had reggae music and it was just very, very uplifting. So this opening slide is just a picture of, of the group of us towards the end, a lot of those of us who came to speak. And my speech was really from sort of a maternal standpoint and talking about that we are on this threshold now through um, sort of these life sciences and imposed population level bioengineering, moving to a point at which we may lose the idea of natural life, of non-synthetic life. And so that we need to really stand in that place, those of us who can see what's happening um, in defense of, of natural life, uh, natural connection among people and also people to the environment. And so, um, you know, I kind of closed in that saying, like, we should strive to be ancestors worth claiming. You know, we, this is our moment, those of us who can see. So that's this first image. Um, okay. Um, so I, a number of the people that I've worked with on these issues, starting in education, it was just other moms, you know, and, you know, people who thought that things were not right in with their kids and started digging in and weren't necessarily limited by their jobs or situations to stop them from digging further. And uh, so a year ago, January, I actually took a trip down to Dallas and also Tulsa, where I did some small presentations. And, you know, I was trying, we were doing some field trips to various uh, locations in Dallas that were the center of this human impact economy and the educational uh, services. And I was trying to explain to Lynn, you know, we're driving down the highway, how I would encapsulate what's happening. And I said, it's sort of like if you imagine that the Ivy League business schools got together 
and they, they set up a game, like a game of life, sort of a Dungeons, Dungeons and Dragons kind of game. And it was coded by the military. <laughs> and then the, the people who were the dungeon masters were like the social workers and the educators and the healthcare people. They kept everybody in the game. And then, and then it was all done to profit hedge funds. So it's sort of this, this idea of remaking life on earth as living inside a militarized video game for finance. And so that's kind of this, this thing that I hold with me as crazy as it sounds is as we're moving towards an internet that doesn't simply live on our computers or in our phones, but is actually through the 5G and later 6G networks, turning everything in our physical world, both in our homes and in the outside world and potentially through biosensor technology, like in nanorobotics within our bodies that resonating not with natural systems, but with these mechanical signals intelligence systems and understanding that it's all happening within sort of a militarized space because the, the internet itself is um, a militarized space. And, and in this image, I have a RAND Corporation report on the internet of bodies. Um, I, I have a, an image of Surveillance Valley, which is a book I highly recommend by Yasha Levine, which is a military history of the internet. Uh, some 5G set small cell towers that have gone in all over my community um, over the past year. I have one on either end of my block. And then and, and, uh, a picture of The Big Short, a movie poster from The Big Short, because ultimately what's going to be coming next is the next Big Short is not simply bundled toxic mortgages that the hedge funds will be gambling on, but will actually be remaking human beings as capital, as data commodities, and packaged as debt to, to be gambled on by the hedge funds. And so this sort of is the introductory slides to that concept. Um, so I had a bit of fun. This is this is actually a slide I put together. I, I took a trip out to Salt Lake City about a month or so ago because many of these technology interests and the biotech interests are are based in the sort of larger Wasatch Range, Greater Salt Lake City area. And um, you know, these are people that I've been researching for a long time. And I know in the in the um, movements that sort of resisting against what's happened this past year, uh, you know, Bill Gates uh, is a major player in all of this, but he provides cover for a lot of people that are, are much lesser known. So he's playing his role and his role is to take the heat while a lot more people are, are doing things in the background. So, you know, I have this centerpiece of um, Elon Musk and Jack Ma of, of Alibaba in China talking about AI, because I think this, this shift to the fourth industrial revolution, this shift from natural life to synthetic life is very much tied to this, uh, the fourth industrial revolution, automation and artificial intelligence. So they're the centerpieces, but they're surrounded by people like Larry Ellison of Oracle, um, Pierre Omidyar of, of eBay, uh, Steve Ballmer, formerly of Microsoft, uh, Warren Buffett, uh, you know, Larry Fink, the Tata Group, the Pope. There are all of these different players in this. Michael Bloomberg's going to run the global police state. There are many, many people who are in this tier that don't get nearly the coverage. So, so this image is just sort of touching on these are some of the players that I've been following. And again, my blog, I started my blog in 2016. Um, and really only for the first couple of years, it was primarily education. And then it shifted into human capital finance. And then this past year has really been the overlayment of the biosecurity state onto that. So, um, you know, I just want to say who I am. Like I've mentioned before, I'm a mom. Like first and foremost, I'm a mom. I, I'm fortunate in that I have, um, I work half time. So the other half of my time and probably more, I spend following money. And that's mostly what tells the story. My background is in art history and historic landscapes. And so I, I'm, I'm pretty good at synthesizing a lot of different information and putting it together in a way that I feel makes sense uh, the way I look at it. But I think 
in many ways, I'm, I channel information. People give me information. People make connections. I have experiences. Um, and it's a collective process. It's a collective knowledge building process. And none of the things I'm going to talk about today are like fully developed, done deal permanent. Um, you know, these are what I try to do is give an intelligence briefing as to what is in the minds of these individuals, where they're going so that we can make more intelligent uh, decisions about how we proceed. Because when I was fighting standardized testing, I, you know, I had a learning experience. I did not know until um, it was too late that they had actually used our efforts to stop them uh, imposing uh, harmful high stakes tests on our children because they always knew that the next phase was to, to, to monitor them all the time through devices. They, they already had their next step planned out. And so while we thought we were winning, um, we actually were merely giving them fuel to move to the next phase that they had planned. And so that was a learning experience for me. I mourned a lot when I finally realized with the Every Student Succeeds Act that it was really about much more embedded technology, um, but live and learn. And, and we don't, we'll never know everything in a timely fashion, but I think the, the more I can provide uh, some insiders information that we will be less vulnerable to being having our good intentions used against us in some kind of like jujitsu move. So, um, so yeah, so I have some images here. I, I, I make maps. Uh, I, I show relationships. And again, it's hard to argue with those are all factual relationships If people want to interpret them differently. You know, they can. I looked at LinkedIn. I look at LinkedIn profiles. I look at 990 tax forms. I look around a lot of things. I have an image of a dog with burrs all over its head, you know, from the meadow. I'm like, I bump around on the internet and I find things and I pull it together and, and I, I, you know, I make these intelligence briefings. Um, so this is an image. It's, it's, um, when I was doing the education, working in the education space, and this is something that, you know, it was hard when, you know, a year ago, all of this unfolded and I knew immediately that everything I had been researching for three years was that this was the trigger event for this to all happen. And things that seemed unimaginable um, just a year before were put into sort of turbo drive. So the image that I have here is called A Glimpse into the Future of Learning. It's put out by an organization called KnowledgeWorks, which is based out of Cincinnati. It, it got early seed funding from the Gates Foundation and also Procter & Gamble. And Procter & Gamble helped develop the Internet of Things and the RFID chip uh, supply chain tracking. And so they have been selling this vision for a number of years that school will no longer be in a bricks and mortar building. It will be unbundled. It will be in your city. Um, it will be made up of all sorts of different learning activities. And in many respects, it sort of seems like a wonderful thing for people who unschool or homeschool. It's sort of like what many people have already been doing, only it's within that militarized video game that I talked about. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so they're unbundling, they're taking away people's right to have a, you know, a public education and also whatever civic elements were in, incumbent on that, which had been frayed over time by charter efforts or privatization efforts or, you know, defunding schools. Like it was already pretty broken, but then the idea that education will be spun out into, um, just a series of almost like Pokemon Go collecting skill points, you know, in, in this militarized video game. And when I first saw this, you know, I would tell my husband, he's like, no one's ever going to give up their schools, Allison, like not rich families, not rich. And I was like, I don't know. I'm reading these reports. This is what they say is the plan. And I kind of figured I had maybe seven to 10 years to tell people <laughs> like before this actually happened. And then when, when, you know, last March came around and I'm like, nope. 
this is going into turbo drive. For, so the whole reimagine education that we know through Cuomo in New York, the heads of the unions are on board with this. And it is all learning, but learning under surveillance and learning with your skills that are being tracked into a planned economy that was really goes back to Mark Tucker and the, the National Corporation on Education and the Economy in Rochester, New York, the Carnegie Corporation, is pushing a planned economy but not planned by communists or so it's, it's actually for the, the chamber of commerce, like the chambers of commerce are getting together to develop regional planned economies and the children will be fed with their skills points into these. And I kept thinking, well, how would these regional planned economies work? This is under the workforce innovation opportunity act that Obama was put in place under Obama. And I thought, well, what happens if you're trained in one part of the country and then you want to move? And then those skill, like those jobs aren't there. Like you can't move because you don't, there's only eight jobs in your region and you want to move somewhere and they, the job you have isn't offered. And I thought, well, how is that ever going to happen? Only now with, with the, the, the geofencing and the containment and the biometric identity, like now I can kind of see, like maybe we're never going to get to move again. You know, if you don't. Okay, I hope, I hope you're going to talk about the geofencing and the biometric identity because you're, you're already using lots of words oh, that are. Sailing over yeah, people. Yeah, no, I, I do. I have a slide for that. I have a slide. It's just going okay. off script. So, yeah, I'll talk more about the geofencing and the digital identity. But so it, I would encourage if you have a chance to get back and look at the slide version. Um, I'll try to articulate what this image is. But I have a friend who's a um, she was a, a second grade teacher in Maine. And often they'll, they'll try out these pilots in tucked away areas like rural areas, places that you know, they're not going to get a whole lot of people in a tizzy about it. Although Maine was in quite a tizzy over competency-based education. And there's something called the Global Education Futures Forum. And their website has now been taken offline, but you can still find it on the Wayback Machine. And this Global Education Futures Forum was reimagining education. And it was with people from Stanford and Harvard, but also global people in South Korea, people in Argentina. And it was led by a gentleman named Pavel Luxa. And Pavel Luxa um, was is a transhumanist, and this, this idea that people are going to blend with computers and you're going to upload your consciousness to the internet. And he was from Skolkovo, which is um, outside of Moscow, a business school, sort of the Silicon Valley of, of Russia. And he led this organization. The U.S. contact here was his name is Tom Vanderark, and he was a former uh, program officer with the Gates Foundation and started one of the first cyber charter schools and is now a venture capitalist in education technology. And so they would have these foresight documents that would say what they imagined was coming based on their assessment of what, you know, what was happening across industry sectors. And so the image that I have here is a map that they created called the future of education, where there's this one isolated person in the middle who's almost like a little Lego guy. And he's surrounded by things like biometric wearables and virtual reality headsets and um, reputation scoring and, um, uh, you know, family universities and uh, citizen governance. It, essentially, this person is being remade. They're both isolated, but they're connected to this network of data extraction and profiling systems and financial systems. And you can't even find a teacher in this image. There's no, hardly any teacher. There's a mentor up at the top and a role model, but no teachers. So you're just navigating this on your own. And that's the way in which value is extracted out of these human beings. 
So the backdrop for me, again, as a parent coming in from education is I knew something was big was underway with transforming something as basic as, you know, children's lived experience, right? From the ages of five to, you know, 18, that that huge part of the social fabric was being changed. And that it was being changed by people who were connected with this billionaire class who actually were out and out transhumanists. And, and there's a slide share I have here from Pavel Leksha called the Neuro Web Roadmap, Enacting Our Transhumanist Future. And this is from 2014. So the person who's advancing this new kind of education is advancing it with the understanding that the goal is to create a, a fusion of the human with the machine. Does that make sense? You have... Yeah, it makes sense. Just really quick, I wanted to tell you that, um, so I sold two rental properties I had in Park City, Utah, because I wanted out of there because they're crushing the economy. And I was like, and Biden has canceled rent for people who rent long-term. And so I sold those two properties, hottest real estate market in the country, super easy to sell, and bought a couple rental properties on in the panhandle on the beach. And yesterday I got on a meeting with the company that we're going to hire to have that rented out. And this woman who's going to be like our account executive or whatever, literally sat there and told me from the time your guest enters the keypad and walks in, we know what they're doing. We have already checked their bank account to make sure that their kids didn't log in as them uh, or, or make an arrangement with us to rent your place. Uh, to have a big spring break party without their parents. We, we have bank level, uh, surveillance. We have, we know how many devices are in the house at any given time. We have monitoring inside the house just by putting an iPad in the house so that we know what the noise level and decibels is. And so if it gets louder than a certain decibel level, it triggers within a couple of minutes our phone bank of people to shut that down. I was mind blown because, you know, I was like, what have I been asleep for 20 years? And I just woke up into this Rip Van Winkle. And it's, of course, they're literally explaining it to me for all the benefits to me as the, as the homeowner of this expensive beach house of how wonderful it is for me because they can tell that the person who rented it isn't a spring breaker pretending to be their parents. If it gets loud, they're, you're not going to have a problem with your HOA or your neighbors because they can, but they know how many devices are in the house. So this should, this is blowing my mind. My husband's sitting next to me because I texted him and I said, you need to come see this slide here. Just like Sarah. And so he's sitting here and, but it's just, it's this whole thing shouldn't be mind blowing because like, guys, what did we think was going to happen that we were going to go backwards in technology. And so that's the frustrating thing is that because this technology exists, it's now being forced on us in all these ways that are really quite terrifying. But anyways. Yeah, it's getting on. more and more locked down <clears throat> for sure. And so I just, just for context, again, like I'm from Philadelphia, I have a certain uh, way of looking at things, which maybe isn't everybody's, but you know, we're, we're, you know, Philadelphia, the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution, but then we also have this resistance el- element. So, um, you know, on, in this image I have on my birthday, I did sort of a little resistance. Much of the, the human capital finance that I'm going to talk about is running through the central banking systems. And so the, the Philadelphia Federal Reserve is a major presence in this and has had a number of gatherings around human capital finance with our former mayor, Michael Nutter. 
And the head of the Philadelphia Federal Reserve is a former professor of, of Wharton Business School, who is also on the board of Catholic Relief Services. And, and many of the, the human capital intervention services that are coming are running through faith communities. So that's important. The Vatican is very deeply involved in this. So, you know, I had this little celebration in front of the Federal Reserve on my birthday to sort of protest. I have a, some people join me and we sang and we like burn sage and that, that we had a banner that says children are not data, human capital, or impact investment opportunities. And then we walked to the the home of William Still, who was a conductor on the Underground Railroad. And uh, so he was a, a free Black small businessman, and he helped uh, into freedom, like, hundreds of people out of enslavement. And then he took their family history so they could be reunited. And so, you know, we went to his stoop and sort of touched that that end of that history. And you know, the other, the other piece of this, I have an image of Carlisle Indian School, which is the, um, it was the model for these residential boarding schools that were sort of the key element, one of the key elements of uh, breaking down indigenous culture and separating uh, children from their families and trying to remake them into this new version, right? And so to me, like, in this moment of where we're going with, if you understand Agenda 21, Agenda 2030, this confinement of people into smart cities, um, getting everyone lined up with the certain sort of uh, unified global mindset and, and, and doing all of this surveillance, perhaps like making the dependence on the state through universal basic income. Like there is this longer history that went with that, both in terms of the enslavement piece and you know, the indigenous removal. So part of my piece is that the stuff we're dealing with right now is very big. It is going up against the military industrial complex, the financial industrial complex. It's global. And so that we have to, like the way I come at it for, as a mom is that it's from a place of faith, like a spiritual engagement. And that like part of this is personal growth and like grappling with the history. So I have a quote from James Baldwin. This is up on our art museum. It said, not everything that is faced can be changed, but nothing can be changed until it is faced. So that's part of my story as someone of Philadelphia is to sort of expand some of the historical context and make the connections between what we are seeing rolling out today to this precedent, which again is, you know, understanding that being dependent on the state and having your economic independence removed that there were terrible consequences. So um, anyway, I have a book on the ghost dance, <laughs> the ghost dance and also uh, the many worlds of Hugh Everett. So metaverses. So I have multiple you know, uh, metaverses and the ghost dance are sort of what I'm dealing with. I'm like, how do we get through? Because if we limit it to the material realm, it's going to be really hard. And for me, a real um, inspiration was John Trudell, who is a leader of the American Indian movement. And he, he spoke about predator energy. And I think for me in this moment, this really, this transhumanist idea, it is really profane. It is a profane approach to the world. And because we know that this is global, this is a, this, this great reset, the fourth industrial revolution is people of, of the earth, people of their land, people on their faith around the world need to stand and face, face this thing. And, and he called it this predator energy that we need to use our intelligence to outthink the predator energy and to put ourselves against this machine. He called it technologic. The, the tech, and I, you know, I say that over again because that is what it is. It is a technologic. It is nature versus the machine in this moment. So that's sort of the teachings that I lean on. It, this image here is again from the Global Education Futures Forum. That's the Pavel Luxa Tom Vander Ark. They had a whole map of um, what they thought, you know, where education was going by 2035, and it was incredibly detailed. And so these are just a couple of pullouts from this, but they're talking about models of human capital investment. 
new models of human capital investment. Um, <clears throat> also on this image, but they talk about prenatal university, technologies in prenatal education, like stimulating children in the womb. Um, uh, education uh, toolboxes where your personal data uh, make recommendations for you. So if you understand that maybe your access to education is going to be predicated even on your genomics, they were talking about student genetic passports, because a lot of what's coming is actually steeped in a eugenics, this early social progressivism eugenics movement. They speak of um, people nares, literally that you would have like billionaires, but they would be made up of portfolios of human beings. And so part of what I'm trying to get across to people, especially people who might come from more of a libertarian standpoint, <clears throat> is that I think there there's a sense of, you know, I want to have local autonomy, my own community accountable to our people, small businesses, independent businesses, control of our schools, control of our medical choices. But what's coming in this sort of cybernetic, you know, video game world will foreclose that if we don't, if we're not aware that that's the larger program. So the, the people nares will be the people like Peter Thiel, right? Who are running Palantir, who are running PayPal. They're the, the types of, you know, big L libertarians that might <clears throat> be owning up the human capital bonds. So what underpins all of this, and this is what came out of my work in education, technology. Sorry, let me just cough for a second. <clears throat> I had another interview before this, so I'm getting a little hoarse, um, is this idea of pay for success. It is the weaponization of the social safety net. So we know that there's a lot of wealth inequality, you know, disparities. That is now going to be weaponized in the name of offering solutions that aren't going to be really solutions. They're going to be surveillance investments. This idea of an outcomes-based government contract comes out of the mid-1990s, but they didn't have the technology to do it back then, to really fully roll it out with the automation, but was that you would outsource public services to a nonprofit to provide them under the condition it was like pay for performance, that you, you met certain standards. And this was started in the mid-1990s. Arthur Rolnick in the San Francisco, or, sorry, the Minneapolis Federal Reserve uh, helped set this up with Stephen Rothschild. And way back then, they were already talking about human capital performance bonds. You know, how do we manage people as human capital? So fast forward, you know, 15 years or so, Ready Nation, which is was led by Robert Duger, who is a, a fund manager, former fund manager for Paul, Paul Tudor Jones, Tudor Investments, which is a hedge fund. He has this organization called Ready Nation, and they're going to start to create bond products around universal pre-K and also workforce reskilling, which is a huge issue now with all of the lockdowns and people losing their jobs and creating those as debt markets that they can manage people as debt commodities. And so in 2018, they actually gathered in New York City and, um, they planned all of this out. They rang the NASDAQ bell. They were in Times Square. This was all sort of put on display, you know, in the, the, the two years before, you know, what we now know is underway. Um, and it's because now they can track these government performance bonds with something called a digital identity in this spatial web, in this Internet of bodies. They can track how you perform, how you comply um, as a debt commodity to the government, you know, in this space. So pay for success is, is the underpinning for the pre-K investments, because really what they want are the children in this moment. They again, if you're imagining 2030, 2035 is this agenda 21, um, 
framework, you know, where things are going in terms of a globalist controlled society. Today's preschoolers, like today's babies and toddlers, those are the ones they want to condition so they don't know. They're like a fish in water. They don't know there's anything different. I mean, people like me, I'm in my early 50s. Eh, like they're going to try to finish us off so they don't pay our pension, you know, whatever, and be done with this. They they know that most people in a certain age bracket are not going to be confined in this new cybernetic future. They want the kids. And they particularly, it's not just that they want to condition them to this new future, but they're going to do it in a way that they can also make money on it. So there's something called the Heckman equation that was set up by uh, James Heckman. He's a Nobel Prize winning economist at the University of Chicago. And he's funded by the Open Society, which is George Soros. Um, you know, and again, Soros is funding someone at the Becker Friedman School of Economics. So this is totally bipartisan. Everyone is in on this game. It's a game of power. And the Pritzker family, who's now the, you know, the J.B. Pritzker, the governor of Illinois, and they set up this equation and they said, okay, well, we can, we can guarantee a seven to 10% rate of return on early childhood investing. Um, and up to 13, if you get health data, if you throw Fitbits on those kids and some brainwave headbands or some smart shoes or some smart shirts, you can get up to 13 smart playgrounds, right? And so, um, and then, but, but then if you listen to him, Heckman and Pritzker went on the road up and down California to sell all the community foundations on this. And they said, well, you know, we can't actually change cognitive data. We can't change your intellect, um, but we can change character. And we can do that essentially with video gaming. So all of the uh, uh, Sesame um, pre-K apps, Sesame Workshop pre-K apps, that's all about uh, planned behavior change uh, for these impact markets. And the scary thing is it's not simply children after they're born. They're embedding this into home visit programs. So South Carolina is the home visit model for this with nurse family partnership. In, in, in South Carolina, part of that program for pay for success for home visits involved women, low-income women on Medicaid being signed up for a behavior tracking app for their parenting, to track their parenting through an app. And that app was developed by Pam Omidyar, Pierre Omidyar's wife. And she has a... a Health compliance neural lab, and he's the he's the founder of PayPal, I believe you said. Yeah, 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 yeah. eBay, and and then well, the is is PayPal. Uh, Omidyar is eBay. Yeah, and so he, you know, now you've got, you know, low income women, and at this point, it's voluntary, right? But at what point, knowing the social credit scoring dam- dynamics and things that are going on, if you don't engage with the app according to some metric. Like when you go to the hospital, maybe you don't get to take your baby home. Like if you're not a good parent, according to this, you know, the home visit. And there are actually many, many women like from, you know, I come at things from probably more like a left leaning, honestly, but this is about life. So we're all fighting the same thing. Many, many people coming from a conservative standpoint were very successful in pushing back on these home visits because they were trying to get in people's homes like one or two days after birth with iPads and tablets to collect a lot of data. And it was framed as trying to benefit people's health outcomes, but really it was a giant data grab. So, so yeah, the Heckman equation is, is a key part of this. And, and this is, um, you know, again, I mentioned Heckman says we can't really change cognitive data enough because IQ hardens up and what they need is dynamic movement for the hedge fund betting. But, and, but they can change character Whoa. and they can change behavior. Too much, too much jargon. Back up a little bit. Sorry. Say that again, less jargon. <laughs> Sorry. Well, they want to digitally brainwash children. <laughs> they say that they can change their behavior and track this behavior change. And they want to engineer their behavior to something that works in this world they're building, which is kind of an anti-life world. 
And so one of the ways this is going to manifest is that there's a company called Hatch Education. And Hatch Education is based out of North Carolina, Winston-Salem, North Carolina. And they have a smart table, which looks sort of like the size of a big screen TV laid flat. And this slide shows this, this image. On either end of the table is a fisheye lens camera. And the children are supposed to play at this table with an online game, like online puzzles, two-dimensional screen-based play, and be filmed, and then have their social behavior scored by these cameras. And then that, that data is collected for impact markets. And these tables are being used in EduCare uh, franchise Head Start preschool programs. Okay, so if, if we imagine what's coming with the global economic collapse is that people are thrown out of work or people who used to have good paying jobs have jobs that are gig jobs or less well-paying jobs. Maybe they have need government assistance now. That assistance is going to come with strings that will then push like a welfare to work scenario. So then their children all end up in franchise preschools because they're quote unquote quality. And the quality is assured because you can have something like a surveillance play table to track the children. And that's where this is layered. And it goes way back because one of the major operators in the space is Michael Milken. Uh, Michael Milken was part of K-12 online education, but also kinder care. So the corporate pre-K goes way back in terms of them wanting the kids, wanting these kids. And so the other image that I have on the screen is a gentleman. He's the um, uh, an executive with a company called Otus, O-T-U-S. And he talked about behavior tracking classroom behavior management apps, which are really common now because they talk about wanting social emotional data in, on children in classes. They, they frame it that they care about their well-being, but really it's about data collection and profiling. So he talked about collecting these big five traits called the, the ocean traits, openness, conscientiousness, extroversion, agreeableness, and neuroticism. Okay. And so he's, and in this clip that I have, this is in, in the oak paneled room at the University of Chicago with Jim Heckman, the invited guest. And he said, as a former administrator in the Chicago, suburban Chicago public schools, am I going to tell parents I'm tracking their kids' neuroticism? Nope. <laughs> like, I'm going to find some other way to talk about it. But that's what they're up to. That are they, is this. Are they aware that the, do you think they're aware that the injections that they want to 5X and 10X have 10X in the course of your and my lifetime, that these injections are going to create a lot of neuroticisms like, I don't know, banging your head, uh, repetitive behaviors. I'm sure you know what I'm talking about. Yeah. The more shots, the more that they get. Those are the neuroticisms they've created that you're yeah. saying is not a character trait they want. They want to filter that out through. Well, it's interesting because I think they want to engineer it. And if you understand, and I'll talk about this a bit later, that if these are all markets in, in gambling, that there will be people betting both sides. So they're, okay. so they're making money, whether things go badly or go well, somebody is making money. Somebody's making money. Right. And I will say, um, in terms of understanding um, people's brain function, um, neurological issues, there are certain kinds of brains that I believe are the types of mindsets that they want to build this virtual world. 
that, um, and we're seeing this now with a, a push, push around dyslexia screenings and things. They want to put people in the proper slots. And so I was doing a lot of work around impact investing in Israel and, um, the Israeli Defense Forces actually has a whole uh, new unit that's focused on satellite analysis, satellite imagery analysis. And they specifically were targeting about talking about recruiting children on the spectrum because their brains were really good at that work, like long term focus. Um, I was, I was assuming be- that you you have all the autistic kids that they've created. I mean, I think it's now 40 percent in New Jersey least of boys that are now autistic. Now that we have, you know, 10 times more toxic shots being injected into a child from birth to age 18, they are actually really good at lots of things. So that's what you're saying is they're just like calculating for that and putting them in the right spot in the economy. I mean, it's interesting in the dyslexia screening. So California is advancing a mass dyslexia screening program. Um, there, there are issues around that because that's also being set up as an impact market. Boston Consulting Group did that work with California to use it as. So why would you screen every child starting in kindergarten, regardless of if they were showing um, that they had a need for some literacy support? But it's making a market for the screening protocols for the testing companies and then also creating an incentive to um, medicalize and um, create groups of kids that you can put on their intervention literacy online programs. Um, so these are all markets that are being built. You know, why would you not provide, you know, instead of spending all your money screening every child, provide the screenings to the kids that need it with parent and teacher consultation, and then spend the rest of the money on books and libraries and reducing class sizes and things that would help all the kids read. You know, it's things that are logical like that, that are not, but part of the dyslexia of framing is that they have a certain kind of brain that is good to be an entrepreneur. So they're, they're already in like, whether that's accurate or not, but they're already framing certain subgroups and slotting them into different categories. It's almost like a caste system, which we're seeing like the medical caste system that's going to be arising out of, um, you know, the protocols that people are going to be forced into. But, you know, it's, it's, Again, it's, it's, it's one, on the one hand, it's sometimes it feels very pseudoscience-y, but then there, there's, there are real indirect impacts on kids. But even the fact that someone is sitting in a, standing in a room at the University of Chicago in the, in this elite company saying, I'm not going to tell parents in public schools, I'm tracking their kids' neuroticism as they're making an impact market out of it is really horrific and people need to know. And so that's why I'm here to tell them, you know, that this is coming. Um, part of the reason I know, again, I had mentioned I'm in Philadelphia. A lot of this is coming out of the University of Pennsylvania and, uh, you know, Wharton Business School. And so, uh, Judith Roden, who was the former, uh, president of the University of Pennsylvania, when she left, she became the head of the Rockefeller Foundation. So in the lead up to the last global economic collapse, they were setting up these impact markets and Judith Roden set up the Global Impact Investment Network. And which is interesting because it's G-I-I-N, which is sort of like gin, which is sort of, you know, it has a bit of a like a spirit kind of there's a wordplay. There's some wordplay going on there. And they also set up the impact metrics with something called B-Lab, these benefit corporations, because the the synergy of the outcomes based contracts rely on the government outsourcing to private providers. It's these public private partnerships, which I think really sort of start to lean into a fascist programming, a corporate governance programming. And 
So for us, education data was part of the impact economy. There's an image here that I have an image of uh, former president, uh, Penn President Judith Rodin. I have one that says greater Philadelphia's potential to be a center of the impact economy. And that's because we are we are a large city and we're a very poor city. We're talking predominantly black city. So we're also surrounded by very affluent communities. So we were being targeted because they had the academics who were developing these debt products. And we had a vulnerable population as a center testbed for this new financial structure. Again, it was all framed because what needed needs to happen for this to roll out the stakeholder capitalism capitalism model to roll out is that everyone on sort of the liberal progressive left needs to agree to this because not, it's a weaponization of the social safety net, right? And if, if people questioned that the, the intent of this, uh, the Medicare for all, where it was going, if you start to tie it to the internet of bodies and smart shirts and DNA nudge bands tracking your food assistance, then it would fall apart. So they needed everybody, all the progressives on board. And so that's all framed as social impact. You know, but to talk about, you know, like DNA nudge bands. Nudge is a word that I had to learn from you. And nudge is a, an aspect that's built into the gamification of life that you're talking about. Are you going to talk about nudges, which are basically I like think a I nice have word? nudge band in there? Yeah. I mean, a nudge, it goes back to like the Obama administration and Cass Sunstein. It's this idea of, you know, I have a bit coming up, I think, about gamification. Let me see in, in a minute. Um, it's like getting someone to do what you want them to do subtly. Like you're not, sometimes I think these nudges will eventually build up into shoves, but it's sort of, sometimes it's like mind control that you don't might, it's like propaganda. You might not even fully realize in the instance that you, it wasn't your decision that you didn't make that decision. It's about making it's choice architecture. It's built into some of the coding world that you put friction in the system for the thing you don't want people to do. It's not, it's not a lot different than what we've seen the whole past year where they've gotten, you know, the vast majority to buy in on a huge lie. The vast majority of the people walking the earth right now have bought in on a huge, huge lie, but that's because they're doing it little micro lies at a time. Yeah, exactly. similar, Similar concept. Yeah. And so, you know, some of this is deconstructing. It's it's branding. It's this idea of branding and the identity element because sustainability is another key piece. So the um, the gamification of life is to put you on a pathway that the global elite say is good behavior and then to track your compliance with what they said you had to do. OK, and so this is being framed as, um, you know, a global good. We're solving poverty. We're fixing the environment. But it all has to be run on data so that we can get credit for our investments, which means everything we have to mine a lot of rare minerals and burn a lot of energy and use a lot of water to cool these data centers because we're turning our whole world into a virtual twin of itself, which is not sustainable at all. But we won't talk about that. We'll say all of the smartness is green and it's packaged as in this ESG investing, environmental social governance. And BlackRock is one of the key advisors in that both for like, the, you know, the U.S. government, the EU is, you know, BlackRock is a major player in this. And so they're pivoting that the sustainable development goals, the ESG investing, that is the kinder kind of investing. You're going to just invest in the right things, but we're not going to actually tell people that maybe your education investment, which is sustainable development goal four, means putting Head Start children on a surveillance play table. 
Like, we're not going to talk about the surveillance play tables, right? Like, we're not going to talk about your investment in parks um, and healthy communities means that we're going to put up 5G and put smart shirts on pre-diabetic ants, people's ants, you know, like, or something like that. We're not going to talk about how it actually works. And so what I'm trying to sort of get out front and say, this is where this road goes. You think you're doing good. And when people ask who the they are, I say, well, the they is, it's these asset holders that are running the capital through people's bodies. That you, they, last time they ran it through people's mortgages until it became obscene and the whole thing fell apart. And now they're going to run it through toddlers and incarcerated people and, you know, moms. And they're going to just run it through people's bodies, but they want it to look good. So that is part of this ESG investing. This slide has, it, it talks about, um, it shows that the impact management project, and I don't have a slide of that, but the impact management project is the they. It's the world's 2,000 largest asset holders. Some of it is your pension fund, right? TIA CREF is a major one. Some of them are the foundations. Some of them are the Vatican. You know, maybe, you know, there are a lot of these different investment markets that you may not be that actually that disconnected to, um, but they're running through the sustainable development goals, which is now an, an extension of the World Economic Forum and Klaus Schwab and the Great Reset. So how are they going to track us in the game? How are they going to track the nudges? How are they going to track our behavior? Well, they're going to make it seem like a fun idea. And so in Philadelphia, like I was following all of this early on. And when Pokemon Go came out, I was like, oh, I didn't know all of this. But I thought this is the test to see if people will just jump on board with augmented reality. This is this the world overlaid with information the world overlaid with smart contracts that control how you interact in this world. But if we frame it that it's a fun thing, people might go along. And so that's what happened with Pokemon Go. It was backed by Niantic. Um, one of the board members of Niantic is uh, Gilman Louie, who was the CEO of InQtel. Now, InQtel, you know, backed Niantic in this. And uh, that's the venture capital firm of the CIA. So if someone said, hey, by the way, the Pokemon Go game and this idea that you are interacting in these creative civic commons type of environments, but it actually is this intelligence apparatus that's setting it all up with Google. I mean, especially given what you just talked about with the knowing how many devices are in a given location, um, that's something to think about, right? And and the Knight Foundation is is a key player in the Internet of Things. It's a former... Um, uh, you know, they were newspaper publishing, but now they're giving Internet of Things grants. They gave us a grant. And so if you imagine a playful park um, that is connected to state intelligence and also maybe wellness, uh, you know, what does that mean when you've got a smart playground and you're tracking the parents' interactions with their kids on the smart playground? Because they've started to build literacy activities into the playground, only you're supposed to read it on the phone. So like you go to the playground, but you're actually supposed to be reading on your phone with your kid to verify the impact market. And there are QR codes being applied to all of these things. It's like tyranny by QR code. And so, you know, Google's taking over parks. There's a park in Kirkland, uh, Washington, outside of Seattle. And, um, you know, the kids are supposed to go to the park and learn, but learn on a device. And of course, only learn STEM because that's the only thing that counts and, and generate this data for Google. And by the way, the device they're using is also a health, you know, metric sensor. So they get their biometric, you know, activity levels off of the device that they're using. And that's supposed to be super fun. And so, you know, I asked some people who are part of a community group that were doing connected parks 
And I said, are you seeing things about wellness investing, like investing in wellness in the park systems? And is anyone talking about data collection? And, and what does it mean to have your data collected in a public space, potentially fueling these impact markets, especially given that the infrastructure maybe is tied to state intelligence? Because some of these things are being framed as uh, addressing past injustice, right? As something that's inclusive or equitable. And I said, well, if, if you imagine that COINTELPRO is now layered into your park, like that's scary, right? Like we should have some protections against that. Communities should know that. And so, again, that's why I have to show up and tell people what's really going on. Um, this idea of augmented reality, again, the layers of information on your world, whether it's, they call it augmented, virtual is when you have the headsets on, um, mixed reality, which is some combination. Sometimes it includes haptic controllers, which are like the, the video game controllers in your hands. You know, ultimately, it may even be a whole like haptic suit. It's almost like you're interfacing with the world through contracts. These are going to be stored on blockchain. Blockchain is a, um, a digital ledger. If you imagine that the slave trade and maritime trade rode on double entry bookkeeping, <laughs> this next version of virtual capitalism going into the video game world needs blockchain because a lot of the assets are going to be digital. So the blockchain is going to be the way to hold your digital assets, not just cryptocurrency, but rights and privileges. So all of these QR codes are part of this spatial web that's being built up. These mini contracts, you know, can you go in that store when you do the QR code? Can you get on a bus? Um, can you leave your house? Um, can you rent a mini bike? Um, you know, all of these things that are going to start when you talk about gatekeeping. Can you go to the museum exhibit? Can you go to the concert? Can you pick up your child from school? All of these things will start to be regulated um, increasingly through physical barriers in the environment. And it will be like every time you meet a QR code, it'll be like, mother, may I? <laughs> mother, may I open the door? And yes, you may if you have the right token, if your medical status is appropriate. You know, if you are the good global citizen, if you have that coin, you can you can do the thing. And so this crazy augmented reality world that's being built, major players in this space are the big accounting firms, the big global accounting firms. So it's the Accentures, it's the KPMGs, it's the Deloitte's. And so this image I have here, it's Deloitte Insights. And it says, um, this vision, let, let me just move this down. This vision through the, um, this vision will be realized through the growth and convergence of enabling technologies, including augmented and virtual reality, advanced networking, in other words, 5G, geolocation, uh, you know, IOT devices, Internet of Things devices, and sensors, distributed ledger technology, and that's blockchain, artificial intelligence, machine learning. And it says, while estimates predict the full realization of the spatial web, this is this new kind of Internet that's the world as the Internet, maybe five to ten years away, many early stage applications are driving significant competitive advantage. And then there's a big quote that says that we're seeing the spatial web unfold that will eventually eliminate the boundary between digital, physical objects, digital and physical objects that we know today. So it is literally they are building a cyber physical world. And this isn't just something I'm making up. I mean, this is Deloitte. And who is talking about this? Like who in the media is talking about this? Like who which activists are talking about this? I mean, what you mostly hear is we need more data. Right. Our problems would be solved if we just had more data. 
I mean, on the, on the progressive side of things, I would say, if we just had more data, then we would fix things. I'm like, no, if we just had more data, you wouldn't have more impact deals and more nudging <laughs> to, to get people in the right mindset. So the other piece of this is that they want to reframe our relationship to the state in a globalized construct. They actually are looking at eliminating nations now. And I'm not a nationalist. Like I think in this big scheme of we're fighting to protect the world, that this is a global peace movement. So like we need everybody and I'm all for every person who cares about life and kids and being decent to the world, right? Like we all have to do it. But this idea, the idea of borders is changing because they're setting up Estonia is the model and they would like people to become e e-citizens, electronic citizens, electronic residents. If you become a digital twin, even before you're a fully digital twin, Estonia already has an e-residency program. And Tim Draper of Draper Kaplan's Richard, Richard's Kaplan, Kaplan Richard, one of the, the big venture, you know, VC firms, he was in on the ground floor in Estonia and in an interview, he was pausing like, I don't really think we need nations anymore. We should just get rid of those altogether. So the globalists are eliminating nations, but you won't even physically be able to come. Like this idea of the immigrants are going to come into our country isn't the thing because no one's going to be able to go anywhere and we're all going to be floating in the cloud as like digital characters. But there yeah, are I don't, I don't think I know what you're talking about with digital twin because I've listened to some of your content, but I don't think you've done that yet. I know it's coming up. It's hard to like say the first like right. it's essentially it is using the data that you throw off in your daily life, which right now, I mean, it grows every year, right? You know, it's, it, before it was, you know, your online banking or, you know, your, your internet stuff or, um, you know, your credit card payments or, but they want to with blockchain identity, which is coming to put everything on there. They want your, your birth certificate, your voting, your land ownership, your healthcare, your education management, even, but even those are chunky things, even down to your, where do you park the smart parking, right? What meter do you park at and for how long? You know, this granular level of data, they want it all interoperable and hanging in this digital identity space. And that almost becomes your digital twin. And I'm going to talk about this a little bit more later, but the cover for some of this is also personalized medicine, precision medicine, and they're going to start like they want to know how you interact with the world and they also want to fill you up with sensors so that they can track how your body works and how your mind works too, which is crazy. This is the internet of bio nano things. So that's, that's coming up, but they, part of it is I, I didn't want to sort of, I can't go deeply into it, but they want to reimagine us not as citizens uh, that have, you know, civil rights and relationships and accountable relationships to our elected officials but instead digital entities that are debt burdens that can be used as debt instruments for gambling at a global level. And that we will might in Israel, they're developing something called a national rights engine where again, it's your benefits. They frame it really nicely. Like depending on who you are, depending on your age or your status, here's your complement of rights, but these will be in a digital wallet. And so eventually the thing that they're promoting as the plus side of things, like that we care about you, here are all of your rights that you have, it will be, these are all the restrictions you actually have. So in this slide, I talk about the Estonia e-government, the Israeli digital rights engine. There are 10 countries that are leading this right now, not the US, but Canada, Denmark, Estonia, Israel, Mexico, New Zealand, Portugal, Korea, the UK, and Uruguay. So these are all countries that are pursuing this. 
and many of whom have a very harsh lockdown. And we, we see what's happening in Israel right now. And at NYU, they're developing like a new operating system for government, that, that, that your government will be a computer program. You know, um, I'm curious, like why Estonia? My theory is, as I see all of these different pieces of the shift in the, the way absolutely everything in the world works so that it's in favor of the global technocrats vision of our future is that every country has like beta is beta testing something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and I don't know if like Estonia is just such a throwaway country because there's what, like 10 or 20,000 people there or something like that. It's a tiny country. Like I, there's very few people who speak their language. They probably don't leave Estonia much. I mean, has anybody ever met an Estonian? My mother's tried to learn that language for like 10 years. I don't know why she's completely obsessed with it. So I know a little bit about Estonia. I think they even, I think I even went there. Uh, when well, I was it's in- interesting because when I was mapping it, I'm pretty sure that the, the person who was prime minister at the time when this got set up actually grew up in Northern New Jersey. Really? Yeah. Well, and I, mean, was- I think also for all those reasons, but I think he's a Wharton grad actually too, or there are like, you know, there are connections there. And, that, and that's part of it, right? Is that, is that like, there's going to be no, like you said, I'm not a nationalist. And I think one thing that's unique about you compared to most of the people that we talk to or most of the people who are very, very disturbed about the amount of freedom we're losing is that you're a former liberal and you're, I, I've heard you say you're politically homeless right now because you're seeing like how much many, if not most political liberals are embracing this because they don't, they don't understand like what actually happens when you lose this amount of freedom. And, and, and so, you know, I'm just, I'm super curious about like why Estonia, I guess they're also, they were really far gone in terms of socialism anyways. I mean, the, the European countries and the ones who always had a prime minister or a head of state who was um, super pro-socialist and already pretty far left, they seem to be, they seem to be doing more and we're behind because probably because we had Donald Trump for four years, good, bad, right or wrong. Uh, whatever anybody thinks of Trump, I'm going to, most of my audience probably at this point uh, likes him. Um, but like he was, he was, a, he resisted a lot of this stuff. Not all of it. Yeah. Not all of it. Well, I mean, I think everybody has their role to play. Like when I was, I went to a, a gathering at the Dirksen Senate building about two years ago where they were rolling this out. Actually, Jim Sorensen, we were talking about Utah. Like, so Jim Sorensen gave the opening key mar- note remarks and, um, you know, Jim Sorensen is one of the richest people, richest and most influential people in the history of Utah, by the way, anybody listening. Yeah. And so it was like when I went to this gathering, it was several hundred people. They were celebrating the passage of this social impact partnerships pay for results act, which is like quite a mouthful. It's called CIPRA. And like I was on the, my friend and I were the only two regular people in the room and the presenters were predominantly Republican um, legislators, you know, speaking, but then they would have a panel and the panel were all Obama policy wonks. Right. And then the audience was all the nonprofits and the consultants who just couldn't wait to get an outcomes based contract set up, (laughs) you know. And so I'm looking around the room thinking, well, like, who is on the side of against this? Because this is horrible. And in fact, in the Q&A at the time, you know, they open. I'm I'm pretty good at getting like the first question. And I and I said, well, I'm hearing that they're setting up social impact bonds, these outcomes based contracts around social emotional learning in schools, like in middle school, and that the cost offsets that justify these are addiction and incarceration. 
And, you know, I'll t- I can talk about this a little bit later, but the social impact bonds for pre-K, the kids were tracked in pre-K, but they were done at kindergarten. Like they stopped being tracked. And I thought, I asked these panelists, I said, well, if a kid gets pulled into an intervention in middle school, they get screened as being at risk, not because they did anything wrong, but simply they're perceived of as a risk. They might have a risk factor. Um, when do they stop being watched? And then, and, and nobody really had a good answer for that. Like, I'm like 20 when they're 40, 70, like, when do they have to say, well, I was never going to be in prison or like, I, that was wrong. That, that screening wasn't accurate. And they didn't understand me. And afterwards, I literally had three different consultants push hand, cards in my hand saying, we can come up with an equation for that. So they couldn't even imagine that it was unethical or what that would mean for kids. And that's like when I feel like I fell through the looking glass because I'm like, this is a wrong way to treat society, to treat children. And y'all are all in on it. And you're toasting with champagne and chocolate strawberries in the back room. And I've got my banner up there saying kids are not impact commodities. The woman from Goldman Sachs who has a special needs child who said that in the presentation, I'm saying I had half sheets saying don't put kids on surveillance play tables. And, and Dave Wilkinson, who's in Ken- Connecticut, he's the head of, you know, he's working in, in child protective services stuff and Ken- home visits. And I'm like, don't put these kids on surveillance. They don't want to know. They don't yeah, and, and, and it's because like, unless you're already deep in this and you have an awareness of the high level of this and how much is going on here that will put us into an open air prison, we're already there. We're already in an open air prison. It just gets a lot worse and they keep, you know, like tightening the noose around our neck one degree at a time. It's like, you know, boiling the frog, just one, one degree at a time. But if you're not aware of what's going on, then it can always be framed with positive outcomes. You can always be yeah. pitched on the good things. Kind of like this company that I had a meeting with yesterday about my beach property in uh, Santa Rosa Beach, who was just like, well, now you won't have spring breakers. Well, and and if it gets too loud, you won't get in trouble with the HOA because we know exactly how loud it is inside the house. Okay. And then nobody, nobody like takes that next step in their mind and says, then my vacationers who rent my house have absolutely no privacy whatsoever. I mean, th- that hope hope y'all don't plan on having sex. Someone, <laughs> someone's going to hear Not it. Not loud anyway. <laughs> right? Like someone's going to hear it. Like it's that bad, but like people don't take that step and go, oh my gosh, when we give up our privacy, like we walk in and like people could be like, you better not be walking around naked, better hide behind. This is literally 1984 where they have the big telly screens yeah. and, and the guy, Winston Smith, who's the main character of 1984, had to like hide over on the side by yeah. the wall from the, so that telly, the telly screen. screen couldn't see him. But, but I mean, we're there and that's the thing is it's always, always, always going to be presented in terms of what the benefits are. And, um, the, this is. Uh, truly disturbing how far this goes. And you were talking about when you came to Utah that you've identified what over a hundred in Silicon Slope. So this only makes sense if you live in Utah, but Utah is very proud of its status as, you know, a junior Silicon Valley at Silicon Slopes because, you know, we're in the mountains, but that, you know, personally know of over a hundred companies in the like Northern Utah County area where we have all these like skyscrapers full of these digital companies. Now I'm sure everybody isn't in the skyscraper anymore, but now they're just working from home, but that are actually building the, the means of our enslavement. Yeah. And yet these people, and they might they have, like, they might have PhDs or whatever. They have no idea. 
I've spoken with people, I've done presentations in Israel because it's the same. Like, I think it's a similar dynamic. I mean, there's actually like interesting like connections between Salt Lake City, but this idea that you have like a, a, your economy is built on tech. You know, you're very proud of this, this economy that you, and I'm like this, this surveillance system that you're building, which is now morphing into life sciences and synthetic biology and tra- is moving towards transhumanism is actually going to like have profoundly negative consequences for your children and grandchildren, right? There's no way out. There's no way to get to step out of this game that you've started. You're not going to be protected once it is in play. So be very careful, like beware beginnings, because I don't think people are looking far enough ahead. So I'll just keep plowing through a little bit. This whole idea of pay for success finance, and I think this is why it's so hard to get through to people, is it's it's grounded on a public-private partnership. So you've got government officials are part of it. The nonprofit complex is part of it, including the faith communities and then investors. And so, and then I I didn't put in here, but nonprofits are kind of also the academics. So there are not a whole lot of people other than like maybe small business owners who are not somehow implicated in the system, whose livelihoods are not embedded in this larger system. Um, The people who are facilitating these public-private partnerships, you know, I stumbled into this because our school superintendent was a consultant to them. Uh, But this is like Ridge Lane Limited Partners is that's Tom Ridge, uh, our, you know, former governor and, and you know, head of Homeland Security. He set up a merchant banking firm to essentially set up the public-private partnerships. And he's got, you know, like 80 different advisors across four different areas, um, uh, education, IT, sustainability, and real estate. And they're in all of those sectors. And it's it's fully bipartisan, uh, bipartisan governors, you know, both Republican and Democrat. On the education side, Michael Crow is a key figure. And again, he's he's the, the founding chair of InQtel, um, you know, very deeply embedded in the military industrial complex, came out of Columbia University as at Arizona State, which is a model of online digital education. And, you know, according to Michael Crow, we're already cyborgs. Like he's already thrown in the towel. He's like, these, this new generation is already cyborgs. So these individuals are weaponizing this. And, you know, I know it because I went up against our superintendent and I said, you can't be a public school superintendent and then be consulting on the side with a merchant banking firm. And, you know, and he admitted to me, I said, it says you're on their, on your website. Is that true? And he's like, yes, but I'm just on phone calls about like the future of work for students, which is, you know, to build this global prison. And then the next, you know, shortly thereafter, he disappeared off their website. So um, again, I touched on faith communities a little bit. You know, it is, this is a global enterprise. Um, a major player is the Vatican, the Vatican Bank. They've had three impact conferences in coordination with the business school at Notre Dame. And this one was pretty chilling because this talk was about, uh, by a nun who is an economist. And she was essentially sort of saying, that the Catholic Church was going to be on the cutting edge in the next 20 years of social change and that they were going to work in, in the sectors of <clears throat> econ- <clears throat> sorry, economics, politics, and technology. <clears throat> sorry, <clears throat> I need a, probably get a glass of water. Um, but that essentially the church was going to be the conscience of big business and they were so excited to do that and that it was going to be like uh, 15th century Florence with the bishops in charge of the big book of moral economic decision-making. Okay. So to me, when I read that reading between the lines, I'm like, they are going to blockchain religion. Like the behavioral protocols of very, not just Catholicism, but all of the faiths that have rules, they're going to blockchain that. 
And then they're going to run the impact markets. And so if you're someone who all of a sudden becomes housing insecure and the waiting list is some um, provider that isn't your face, (laughs) but that's what's on offer, guess what? Now you're on blockchain to whatever that faith provider is, right? And that, you know, when you talk about automating things, that becomes really intense, right? And and I think they're all in on it. And this is what's so hard about like even the poor people's campaign with Reverend Barber is that even these interfaith groups, I think they all know because the, the poor people's campaign is backed by the Ford Foundation at the Caro Center at Union Theological Seminary. So those people at the top know what's coming. And then many people who are well-intentioned people in churches and synagogues and other things think they're doing the right thing because they know that poverty is a problem and they have no idea that these people are going to be fed into the surveillance state. Yeah. David Icke says that it's only people at the very, very, very top who really know all of it. But then the further down you go, the less they know. And I mean, you can see how people who are very high up just assume that well, we're only going to, this can only be used for good things. I'm sure that there are laws that keep this from being used for ill. Well, here's the problem. The laws are not way out in front of all this technology at all. No. I mean, and and the thing is, it is an economic imperative that they create these debt products. Like we literally have a global economy that runs on war, poison, you know, um, finance. Like it's, We don't have a super healthy global economy right now. I mean, the the worldwide, like a lot of the stuff that we're people are making money at the people, these couple hundred, you know, billionaires are really bad for life on this planet. Make sure you get get to the couple hundred billionaires and the 3000 largest asset holders. Make sure you touch on that stuff. All right. Well, you know, I have the impact management project. I, I encourage people to go there. I, I don't know. I didn't know everything to, maybe we could put a link in it. We'll put a link in, in the thing at the end, but okay, we'll put, again, we'll put many in the show people, notes. Um, I'll put in the show notes. I'm saying this to Trevor who edits this to put, what is it? Global the impact management project. project. What is it? The impact management project.com. <laughs> I think if you just Google it and then it's the practitioners page, there's a page that says the practitioners of the impact. It's not all 2000, but it's several hundred of them. And that's, that's where it's at. And don't go there thinking that you're going to just be like gasping as you read person's name after person's name. No, it's a whole bunch of logos. These, yeah. these people hide behind corporations. And I looked through all those logos and it was just like a bunch of logos of, you know, corporations I, I wouldn't recognize. And that's by design, I'm sure. Yeah. And so, you know, I think the people who've been probably been following you the past year are familiar with the idea of the Great Reset and Klaus Schwab. But again, this is this backdrop of the fourth industrial revolution. Uh, they, they, they created um, their hub at the Presidio in San Francisco. So this this public private partnership for impact, you know, that was launched there. So that's Gavin Newsom. Again, they're building a post-human world for robots. This is an image of Boston Dynamics and some very intense uh, robot creatures that were sort of pseudo military, but you know, we've seen the expansion of the, the spot, the robot dog for the social distancing. And now they're slapping tablets on spots face and look, you can have an automated check-in doctor, a teledoctor on a spot robot dog come visit you or the police can come break down your door. You know, there's all sorts of images. So we're, we're, you know, what I'm trying to say is rather than 
if we're in the spiritual engagement, rather than niggling with all the little immediate facts, like look at the big picture. They are building a picture where the robots are intended to outpace people. And I will encourage people. And this is a link that, that I would encourage you to put in afterwards too, is I had, I was in contact with some teachers in Tokyo at an international school. And they were like, Allison, you need to read this moonshot paper. And when I looked at it, I was like, yeah, you're right. Um, this is the, the government of Japan. The Japan Science and Technology Agency has developed a, a vision paper where they're imagining by 2050 that we, that human beings will live free. This is a quote, free from their limitations of body, brain, space, and time. Which, that by 2050, means, we won't even have a body that we will live in. That all the, all the disabled people can be put to work in the, in the economy, even if totally. all they can do is move, move their eyes and their hands or something. Exactly. And they're really revisiting a lot of the early, the social programs for people who have illness that like, uh, you know, pain conditions, you know, limitations that make it hard for them to get out of their house. So there's another image here where it says the, the Japanese cafe uses robots controlled by paralyzed people. So this is this telepresence robot work. So I would encourage people to read this. This is what they're saying. This isn't a joke. Japan is very far advanced in social robotics. They have um, the SoftBank is has the largest innovation fund investing in AI and robotics. A lot of that money is out of the Saudi sovereign wealth funds. So they're moving it from, from petroleum, you know, oil reserves into robots and, and, you know, uh, AI and that Nippon telegraph, telegraph and telephone is doing these digital twins, which is again, using data to recreate some version of you in cyberspace. So this, you know, as much as we might want to think that this is something that's just amusing, I, I think it's really concerning. So I'm just, I have one other image on here from the Moonshot Project. Um, and I'm just going to read a, a little bit of this. It says, so um, WG1, which I think is the, like their Moonshot Goal 1, discusses cybernetic avatar or sea avatar society. In order to create disruptive socio-technical changes in Japan. Sea avatar is a concept that includes not only remote avatars using robots and 3D images as proxies, but also empowerment of the physical cognitive activities of humans using ICT, which is individual communication technology, like small devices and robotics. Sea avatar aims to be active not only in the physical world, but the cyber physical world to make a society 5.0. Now I emailed this to like my young adult child because I read it and I thought, you know, this does interface with what is happening with these protocols for digital identity systems, tracking systems, medical monitoring systems. It's all part of moving towards this transhuman world, you know, and it's very upsetting. It's upsetting to a lot of people to imagine that this is, and can they pull it off? I don't know. You know, it's still clearly a vision, but they have significant resources to put towards it. So I think it's not, something that we should easily dismiss. Yeah. Make sure, make sure we get to that because I want to make sure that we um, talk about, even if, if it's at the very end, the hopeful thing to me when I listen to your content is that you have a slide and I don't know if it's here, but it's showing all these organizations that you've identified and how they're connected. And, and you say, look at all these weak points, look at all these yeah. points at which this could fail. If we stand up to it, if we resist this, if we, even just freaking wake up to what's going on and what the danger is here. So anyway, 
Let's make I know. Sure well, some of this seems so ridiculous. Like, I mean, on this image, so I, I have a, this is about, so they talk about what's coming. Like we know how disruptive the last round of globalization was, right? The, the, like it was, it harmed so many people. It led to the rise of the prison industrial complex. It, it, it undercut wages in countries all over the world. You know, it, it enabled the concentration of wealth and power in like smaller and smaller numbers of hands. We know that last phase of globalization did not go well. This next phase that they're imagining where we're all trapped in like closets wearing haptic suits is going to be much worse in this sort of big prison. So no one's really talking about this next phase of globalization with not only um, platform labor, but also this remote robotic labor. So there's, there's a ridiculous image here that is a man with the VR headset and the haptic controllers in their hands. And then he's controlling a rope, this black robot with like three fingers on each hand with this pointy ear. It's like this crazy Siamese cat looking like creature robot. And it is ridiculous, but they were using these, they were piloting these in convenience stores to stock shelves. And so one of the other images of this is someone literally in a closet stocking the shelf of a convenience store somewhere else through the robot. And this paper from the United Nations from 2019, it's, it's talking about globotics. And this is this remote robotics. And it says, as um, this is a quote, as various forms of virtual presence technologies are combined with human controlled robots, an expanding range of manual services can be provided at a distance. At the high end, technicians could conduct inspections or undertake repairs from remote locations. So that's like the robots in Fukushima or whatever. Um, and nurses in the Philippines could care for the elderly in Japan. Okay, so they're talking about robots in one country taking care of people, the elder people, elderly people. At the low end, hotel rooms in Oslo could be cleaned by robots controlled by cleaners in Kenya. Lawns in Texas could be maintained by robots steered by Mexican gardeners in Mexico. And this is why I think if you read this, people who imagine that the immigrants are the, the problem in the equation is that this future that they're imagining is very different from our current situation. And that is why, like, we should not, there is enough resources in this world that people can live comfortable lives, that no one should be existing in this dispossession, trapped in a closet, running a remote control lawnmower. And they want to pit us against each other. And this idea of borders and control and immigration is going to be very different if they're able to implement geofencing, like controlled electronic borders, but combined with this virtualization of cyborgs and telepresence robots. How does one, there's no provisions as far as I can tell to protect labor, anybody's labor. It's just, it's a race to the bottom. And so the digital identities that are going to be set up to hold your skill points and your behavior points will be fed into AI to decide who gets to lift the elderly man from the bed today. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm seriously, sometimes I think that, you know, people who have are really way down the rabbit hole when it comes to vaccines and have been studying it for 25 years, which I have been studying for 25 years since I had a vaccine injured, vaccine injured child and I was vaccine injured in the same year. I think that they, um, I think that the people who are doing these vaccines truly literally do not know how much harm and death and disease and catastrophe they're going to create because there won't be anybody to do any of this. And I realize that people will say they just default into, well, it's a mass kill event. Well, it's, you know, but at some point you need some people who are functional enough to do all these things that they're, that they're needing and that they're talking about. And if everybody gets the vaccines, everyone is going to have 
cascades of autoimmune disease and they they literally aren't going to be functional from it. And so I just wonder like, is there how many of them even are aware of just the, the harm that they're, they're intending to roll out. I don't, I don't think there's any way that most of them have any idea. They literally don't know how harmful the, even just the medical part of it. Yeah. Is. Well, I, I think they're playing God really. They, they, they believe that, I mean, that it's this, you know, and they don't, I mean, I think on the one hand, they understand how complex life is because they, they're intent on capturing the complexity and managing it. Like they acknowledge how complex this slide that I have is called, um, a planetary computer for a sustainable future through AI. Like literally Microsoft wants to turn the world into a planetary computer. And, and there's an image with DNA barcoding. They call it the barcode of life that they want to capture life in a barcode. They want to capture genomic profiling of everything. And, you know, when I was in Utah, it was a thousand life sciences companies in the state, a thousand. So, you know, they're working on the, the other image here is iGEM, which is synthetic biology, um, you know, engineering life. And so, you know, when once you go there, you're creating markets for a thousand companies to re-engineer life on a barcode. And to me, at this point, that is where it becomes this this place that we stand for life for for the kids you know to keep to stand in the breach for them because they need someone to stand for them to stand in the breach for you know the other beings you know about slide at the end about moss you know how does the moss defend themselves against nanorobotics and someone coming and barcoding its life um it wants to be they want to own it all and manage it all and i think that there is a there is a an illness there is something that is dysfunctional either socially or individually with people who feel that it is appropriate, that that is an appropriate way to engage in the life process. But this, this is a slide I have. It's called DigiTwins, Digital Twins for Better Health. So they're using um, this idea of pre- precision healthcare to justify the collection of biometric data and in terms of how your actual body works uh, to, to get more and more information, I think, to create these markets. So in, in Philadelphia, Wharton Business School, its main building is actually was funded by the Huntsmans, who are from uh, Utah. And, you know, very wealthy family, their money came from chemicals. OK, so they, they made money in the chemical industry and then they used their, their um, philanthropic assets into cancer research, but specifically genomic research. So you you're invested in, a, in an enterprise that often generates health problems. Then your philanthropy is used to do genomic research, yes, for cancer, but can be leveraged into other things. And now the synthetic biology, the bioinformatics is layered on the genomic outcomes of the cancer research. And so it just keeps layering in these things. So the digital twins, the health biosensors are part of this. Again, you had talked about the vaccines. This is just a slide of from the Moderna. Um, you know, I had seen this the first month of all the pandemic. This is from the, the Moderna, the mRNA, um, their website talking about their platform being literally the software of life, heavy backing by Gates. You know, do we want Windows, you know, office in our cells? Do we want, do we want to need their software of life, a man-made software of life? Um, that, that is this image. Uh, I would encourage people, if you're intrigued, intrigued by this, to look up something called the Internet of Bio Nano Things. I had never heard of it. There was the woman Celeste 
she talks a lot about biosensors and hydrogel. And so I just started looking things up. And like, if you look up internet, bio nano things, there's a billion things they've been working on it for like 15 years and nobody knows about it. But the idea of really imagining life as an electrical engineering equation, that your cells are computers and that you can reprogram them. And while I understand that there may be times in which people with really significant, um, you know, impairment or uh, threat of death illnesses that really need a really profound intervention and with informed consent, people might agree that this is their best option to imagine that we're going to do population level bioengineering just on a whim, like for, you know, a cold event or something like that. Like this is like an annual or biannual process that we just remake ourselves as computers seems kind of crazy and really more about feeding these, these markets. Ian Achilles is, is, um, working with Georgia Tech in this. And let me see. I'll just read this one clip. This is from the IEE Communications Magazine from 2015. Within the internet of bio nano things, bio nano things are expected not only to communicate with each other, but also interact into networks, which will ultimately interface with the internet. Finally, the realization of interfaces between the electrical domain of the internet and the biochemical domain of the internet of bio-nano networks will be the ultimate frontier to create a seamless interconnection between today's cyber world and the biological environment. Like, that's deep. I mean, this is something from an ethical standpoint. Yeah, it's it's deep, and most people don't even know what you just said. I'm struggling well, with essentially, it. Essentially, it's looking like at imagining it. using nanotechnology, these tiny technologies that are very sophisticated that you can't that are subatomic with energy systems to turn your cells into computers to function in ways that you may not even have control over within your body. Your, your, your bodily autonomy is fully compromised and hackable. And that that should be a normal thing that we should imagine that this is. So this is the next image. This is I mean, from, that's, um, that's like the perfect example of what we're talking about, about how many assumptions they're making and how many plans they have that are not going to work because, you know, like I'm, after I, after I do this interview with you, I've made notes of Dr. Sherry Tenpenny's um, brand new paper. She actually hasn't published it yet, but I'm in advance of her actually publishing. I'm going to go through it. It's the 10 mechanisms of injury that she knows of just from the COVID vaccines alone, just from Pfizer or Moderna, 10 different specific mechanisms of injury for that vaccine that is going to kill millions of people. So like, and you know, and then they want to, and now they're saying we're going to need boosters. So all these people that got tricked into getting the J and J shot. Oh, just kidding. It's going to be two, not one. Oh, just kidding. Everyone, Pfizer, Moderna, J and J, Johnson and Johnson, AstraZeneca, doesn't matter. Y'all need boosters. And then, then there'll be for the mutant strains. They'll have to come out with more. I mean, you know, their plans start to fall apart because they don't even themselves have a clue what the actual downstream effects of this is, are. So those of you who are listening to this, I'm just going to keep like injecting this in there. Yeah, No, no, no. I'm... We don't, we don't know that all this is going to happen and they've tried a bunch of these things and failed. Right. Right. But it's, it's, it's the idea that I think they are using the medical 
profiling healthy human beings as commodities to be managed through medical intervention, like that is both a profit sector. If, if big pharma is to continue to grow, like clearly that the vaccines was already being injected into healthy people, like is a, you know, that, that framework, but now that's amping up. They need markets for this. But at the same time, they have this imaginary idea that they are going to create this human computer interface and whatever harm is done in that process. You know, maybe we're all just guinea pigs in in their, you know, their fantasies that will, I don't have any imagination that it will be seamless. So this image, for those of people who can't see, it's, this is a person, Ian um, Akildiz or whatever, he's at Georgia Tech, he has an unusual last name from 2010, where it's an image of a young man. And so with the bio nano things, he's in a room where the smart screens are just like nanotechnology dots. And his body is full of nanotechnology and his thoughts are just projecting. And there are, so there are no more devices. It's just your thoughts and the built environment of the world all become part of this electrical interface uh, without the actual physical material of the machines. It's all just happening at this nano level. Um, and it's quite disturbing. Like when you see it, like, again, I don't, can they accomplish this? I don't know. But you can, can you imagine how many, how much money is being put into this? Meanwhile, kids in my school district don't have libraries. People are going hungry. People don't have houses. Like there are many, many needs. And and this is where people, the resources are going. I mean, anybody who believes in God, just that segment of the population, which is a huge segment, anybody who believes in God has to be, has to find this completely disturbing. This isn't, this isn't what God created. This isn't what God um, intended. And there's, 10,000 ways for this to go very, very wrong and really harm God's plan for us. So, I mean, I think that, like I said, this is a spiritual engagement, but we have to be able to witness it, I think, and refuse it. I think if, if it just, if people didn't know, or people aren't willing to take a principled stand and know their position in it, to me, this is like the test. Right? Yeah, that goes, this, that goes back to the quote by James Baldwin, you know, yeah, I wrote it down as you were talking, but it's um, not everything that is faced can be changed, but everything to be faced changed must be faced. Yeah, we have, have to, to face it. And that's why, you know, like the first time I encountered your content, I'm like, OK, but what do we do? Are they going to tell us at the end what we do about it? And you're like, well, all I got all I got is people need to know that's that's step one is people need to know what this really is. Right. They need to know, they need to know where it came from. Like that's important to me is to understand the context of it. Like it didn't, it's not aberration. It's like this dominating, this predator energy has been weaving its way through. And then now we are in this moment, which feels like I'm sure other people in other times have felt like the pressure of the, the moments they have chosen to face. But to me, in some way, it's such an abomination. I will just speak to this slide that is in front of me. I wrote a letter to Miguel Cardona, who is the new secretary of education. And, you know, he, his grandfather was Puerto Rican. He grew up in, 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 with, in a subsidized housing in Connecticut. He did his career. He stayed in his community, right? He was very, he's very connected to his culture, but this is an image of him in a virtual reality headset, like with this giant hulking thing strapped on his head. And, you know, to me, this, it was, and it's dated December 20, 22nd, 2020. So it's relatively recent, right? And to me, 
that is this capture of life it, it, that represents a, and it, he doesn't look like he's too happy. I'll say like from his expression, it does not look great. He looks that we use this, you know, and that for these children to be captured, they're training them in these token economics, um, digital script, these classroom management tools, the classroom dojo to try to like, you know, these children are just gifts of light, you know, and creativity and, and they're going to try very hard to squish that out, right? But I think that that's not going to be an easy thing. And I think if adults, when we see these travesty things happen, I mean, it's at this point, like it was already bad with online education and Chromebooks and everything before. But when they start slapping VR headsets on preschoolers, like th- that's crossed well past the line, right? And so that gives us this leverage to just say, no, this is this is wrong. This is like morally wrong. So did, I wrote you a letter from, did you hear back from Cardona? No, I didn't. But you never know the seeds you plant. You know what I mean? Keep nagging. I nag, I nag um, Governor DeSantis at least once a week to come on my podcast. And it hasn't happened yet, but I'm not going to give up till he comes on my podcast. Well, the important thing, too, about Florida is Florida is a center of the simulation industry. Like Orlando, that whole area of central Florida is very deeply into both the defense simulation contracting with Disney and the advanced uh, distributed learning network. It's the military simulation planning is in Orlando, but then also the satellite systems. So like Florida has this also this sort of special element there with the, both the simulation and the, the satellites. But I mean, of course, I'm not surprised that they're all in on it. Not only are they, I'm sure, among the 3,000 biggest asset holders in the world who I'm sure we're presented with, would you like to be in on this or a victim of it? Yeah. You know, like all the Costco's and whoever, and people are, people are always ranting about how Facebook, you know, Zuckerberg is evil and Facebook is doing this. And it's so ironic because last, last July, he said, I'm really concerned about these mRNA vaccines because they don't know, we don't know what it's going to do to our actual DNA. Well, you guys, do you honestly think that Mark Zuckerberg is calling the shots at Facebook? I mean, so so we're not surprised that Disney is one of these um, entities who's in on it. But in case you have any question about it, you can take a look at what's going on here in Florida, which is that it's um, Disney World and Disneyland in California, I believe, are mass vaccination sites. That should. Oh, no I'm one. sure. Well, you know this this image that I have here is just it shows. Um, you know, I have a good friend who is a longtime computer programmer, video game designer, and you know, he, he's a grandparent and just realized in the last five years how the blockchain identity and the token economics and the virtual world buildings are all coming together. So like he shared this with me, it's called Ready Player Me. So it's, it says level up your virtual experience with selfie based avatars that people love and emotionally connect with. Okay. I think your um, the interview you did with him, if it's who I'm thinking of, yeah. is my favorite of all your talks that you've oh. given. And I will put in the show notes because some of you are just going to be like, oh my gosh, how can I learn more from this woman, <laughs> Allison? And and a lot of you will listen to it twice. I was talking to my friend, Ryan Sternagel, a little shout out to my dear friend, Ryan Sternagel. And I, I said, hey, have you, like you weren't there when she came to Utah, but have you followed the work of this amazing woman slash researcher slash mom, however you're identifying <laughs> Um Allison McDowell. And he goes, that is officially the only podcast I've ever listened to twice is the thing. And I'm like, I know, I know, I know. Like nobody, nobody can listen to your content and not have to go back and listen to it twice. Unless, 
unless you're just like, yeah, I don't care, whatever. But like, if you actually deal in content, like I do, I had to go back and I've listened to some of your three hour talks twice. And then there was, you know, and then there was the taking notes or the replaying it um, or whatever. But there's, for those of you who want to go deeper, I'm going to put in the show notes, the talks of Allison's that I've watched twice, including the one where your friend, the the gaming developer, what is his name? Joseph. Every word out of his mouth is pure gold. I mean, you too. Like it was like, that was one of the, those connections online where I was like, there's someone else who appreciates this blockchain smart contract. You know, you didn't know him before. No, I mean, we just connected through a common friend and, and like, it was like, boom, because he didn't understand the hedge fund. He didn't have that part. He understood the AI, the digital identity, the virtual reality, the gaming, but he didn't know that the bets were going to be made by the hedge funds. Well, that's the, that's the reason I mean, I mean, if I can just, I I don't want to like gush or be weird, but my little girl crush on you is, I don't know how you have put so many pieces together. And I don't know how, because you always say you're just a mom. And I will point out to people that you do have a master's degree, apparently in art history. So I, 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 when I'm trying to explain you to people, I say, I'm pretty sure she has 20 or 30 IQ points on me. So there's that, there's that, but I don't understand how you have this mastery of all this jargon from all these different industries that you haven't even worked in. Like your understanding of just like social programming, social systems, uh, let let alone your understanding of like who what moms understand hedge funds anyway you're amazing you're absolutely but amazing. I've had good teachers I mean I think I'm supposed to do this I mean I'm not saying from like we all have our tasks maybe I'm incarnate like maybe I did something really bad my last life and they're like go back and fix it go back you know what I mean like I things have happened to me. I've met people. I've had gifts of teachings of people of books of being in places like, I mean, I wrote a piece about the open air digital prison because I was arrested trying to protect someone who's being strangled by the housing authority police. And so I was in the Philadelphia roundhouse before the scandemic. Yeah. The May 2019, because the housing authority is all part of this too. And so like, you know, I was just trying to save somebody from being choked to death by the housing authority police. And so I ended up seeing this whole system of um, diversion courts and pathways and, you know, how the justice quote unquote system was enmeshed in all of this and what happens to poor people in that circumstance. And, you know, I can't explain it, but I've been put places to see things to tell people. So that's you know, in fact, this image is one of them. So I have that there's the here you can have a selfie avatar and we would like for other people to love it and connect with it emotionally. Below, we have an image from Epic Games because Epic Games is building this virtual reality, the virtual, the capitalism going into the virtual world. That is Epic Games. Epic Games is behind Fortnite, which is one of these hugely popular multiplayer fighting games. And they scaled Fortnite. Epic Games is based in the Research Triangle in North Carolina, Raleigh-Durham. But it was scaled with money from Tencent, which is one of the largest companies in China. Now, Tencent is connected to WeChat Pay that has facial recognition and also Sesame credit scoring, its own credit scoring system. So like it, this, this image here is of synthetic people. 
the Epic Games is creating a virtual reality engine that can use imagery to recreate synthetic people. Now they have this, this meta humans. And that was at a Disney accelerator day that it was being presented. So Disney was hand in hand. But the, the third image on the screen is I have a friend when the Democratic National um, Committee was meeting in Philadelphia in 2016. A friend just happened to say, hey, Atlantic Magazine is having this whole week of like, you know, open discussions. And there's one on education, education in the creative economy. And you should go. I think you should go. And so we met up at this event um, and it was sponsored by Epic Games. And at this event at the DNC, it was um, Paul Megan, who was the head of Epic Games. Suzanne Delbene, who was a congresswoman from Washington State, former Microsoft, Internet of Things co-chair. Uh, there was uh, one of our progressive council people and uh, this woman, Constance Steinkuhler, who was a gaming expert. She had been at UC, University of Wisconsin-Madison and was at UC Irvine. And essentially this hour-long presentation was pretty much like Paul Megan saying, I, I need the kids to, to code my video games. And now literally the, 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 the title of the program is called Teaching for Tomorrow in the Creative Economy. Okay, so like, I, I feel like um, one of the things that I've heard you develop a little bit, and one of the things that's crazy is that I probably listened to your fourth talk before I heard any overlap of the talks. Like, that's how much you know about this stuff. Like, it's not like every show you go on is, you know, is like you're just saying the same thing on everybody's show. Um, but I feel like one of the things I've picked up on from your content is that they need these kids to not just be like, we think of them as like gaming programmers, but since everything is going to be gamified in life or their intention is that absolutely everything be gamified and that everything we do is mapped out for us. And we are digital twins. Okay. All these, all this is like your yeah. vocabulary that I'm trying to understand yeah, yeah. Um, is that they have almost unlimited need for these kids to become basically coders because just think about it. Like every aspect of life, every single industry is having to deal with our digital twin virtualized, virtualized. And so th they need a massive, like I actually told my youngest son because he's trying to figure out, you know, he's 20 and I don't want to coach my kids to be good little communists. On the other hand, um, like you said, I'm expendable. They, they would love for me to just disappear, shut up, go away, die sooner than rather than later. But they want the, they've got to, they've got to deal with my children's generation. My children are between 20 and 27. And I said, you should do something that is going to be useful when the government merged with huge corporations is who is running the world, which, yeah. you know, it's already pretty much yeah. the case. But I'm like, cause he was talking about maybe, you know, changing his major and going computer programming. I was like, yes. Yes to computer programming. I don't, I don't want to coach him to be useful to them, except that if this does, if they get the back break, door, find the way out, you know, it's never bad. It's never bad to be a computer programmer from here on out. So well, the thing is though, that is the globe. Like they really want, like they want India to code the virtual, you know, they, they want to find the lowest wage. Yep. And so once they start to platform this labor, like I think a lot of the coding people imagine like, I don't know, like it's a cool office and you there's like beanbag chairs and hoodies and you like have, you know, like it's like well-paid fun work. And a but lot of it is going to be like sweatshop work. work. I mean, I'm not saying that what he would do, but like what they're developing for, like I keep saying, I think this, because there's a ton of work to be done. If you imagine what was it like to build 
all of the cities, all of the skyscrapers, all of the railroads, like the building, the virtual world is this next generation's thing that they're being given to do. And a lot of it is grunt work. And, you know, it's going to be coded by unfree labor because they're not going to pay top dollar for it. They're going to get kids to code it. They're going to get welfare to work, prisoners, refugees. All of those people are going to be developing because a lot of it is cleaning training data. Like the autonomous vehicles got to go. Well, it's got to learn all of the things. Like you've got to label all these photos. So instead of the prisoners, fancy. instead of the prisoners walking along the beach road out here where I live, picking up garbage with those grabbers, they're going to be like sitting there doing the cleanup exactly. work. Exactly. And they've already actually developed an impact security. So once the governments are all bankrupted and they don't have the money for the public-private partnership anymore because all the poor people are on UBI and the rich people don't pay the taxes, that they actually have something called the impact security, which allows nonprofits to issue, and churches probably to issue debt for social welfare that can be an investment. And then if the outcome metrics are hit, foundations pay them back. So essentially, it's a giant money laundering scheme because every tech company has a foundation. So imagine like the Dell, Michael Dell company investing in like a pre-K that uses Dell products. And then when they hit their numbers, then the Dell foundation pays Dell company back. It's crazy. It's crazy. It's also, it's also a Ponzi scheme. It is a total scheme. It's a racket. This game is a total racket. So I don't, I know we're going on. I have like more, I mean, we can... I don't know how much more we want to do. <laughs> it goes on it, for a while. It's totally up to you. Like I'm, I'm here, but I know that you have been under heavy pressure with so many people. No, trying. To I mean, I think you go, I mean, I made these slides. If you want to hang in right. with me, I mean, I can go yep. on. For a little. So, so this image, you know, when I went to Utah, when I went to Salt Lake city, I had not realized the extent to which the university of Utah was a central player in, um, like the simulation and video compression, like I think that's what actually the Sorensen, some of their money is in video compression software. Um, because Salt Lake City was one of the first ARPA nodes, the, the backbones of the internet, the first four, but not only that was that they went up to the Alta Ski Lodge to plan the internet out. Like that's where they actually planned it the year before in Salt Lake City. It didn't just happen to be this ARPA node. So the University of Utah was a central um Organization, I would, you know, I know Stanford, I know MIT, you know, I know Urbana-Champaign, like different coding places, but I was not fully appreciative of the University of Utah. And when I went out there, we went to the Merrill Engineering Building, which is this glass box rectangle at the base of the mountains. These beautiful, I think it's like Red Butte Valley, maybe something like that. It's like, and it's that it's at the bottom. This is a glass box has the it sits on the only nuclear reactor in the state of Utah. Is in their research nuclear reactor is under there, and. You know, I learned that one of the first virtual items, like the things that you have in digital reality, was created there, and it was called the Utah Teapot. And this coder, he sketched a 1970s Melita teapot, and then he turned it into code, like mathematical, you know, coordinates, and then put it into cyberspace. And he, like, I wrote a blog post about thingification, like taking something real and virtualizing it. And actually, there was a lovely woman I spoke to, and I, I need to get back to her, but in Salt Lake. And I said, we're talking about small ceremonies of reclaiming our humanity, of like standing against this. And I said, you know, you should meet up with some people and have a tea party outside the Merrill um, Engineering Building and reclaim the teapot for the real world. You know, pull it back out. Say, you know, I sage, I, you know, burned some sage there when I went. But like, we can be human, you know, in the face of this thing. So this is a, a quote from um, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., 
1967, it was a, an address he gave to uh, um, the SCLC convention. And it's about thingification. So I'm just going to read it. It says, um, in other words, your whole structure must be changed. A nation that will keep people in slavery for 244 years, that was 1967, will thingify them and make them things. And therefore, they will exploit them and poor people generally economically. And a nation that will exploit economically will have to have foreign investments and everything else, and it will have to use its military might to protect them. And all of these problems are tied together. And what I'm saying today is that we must go forth from this convention and say, America, you must be born again. Um, and so I conclude by saying today that we have a task to let us go out with a divine dissatisfaction. And so to me, like that's very moving in terms of understanding that we are thingifying these um, biometric identities, these digital twins, these injections, these uh, tracking systems and the profiling and the digital items and the cartoon characters is thingifying life. Like it is taking that to a degree that was would probably be unimaginable in 1967. And, and I think that there is quite a, a strong feeling of going out with a divine dissatisfaction. Right. And, you know, one of the people I lean on her teachings, her name is Robin Wall Kimmer, and she's a, a professor of biology, an indigenous professor of biology who studies mosses. And she's at the SUNY um, forestry school. And she talks about, you know, keeping the embers, being the fire keepers, the Chautauqua that you, you carry, that we do the work on the, the, the shoulders of the ancestors that came before us. And that we we carry it as far as we can go. And so, you know, John Trudell, he died in 2015. But I'm trying to carry that ember that he carried forth, right? And so this divine dissatisfaction, like we don't have, like we cannot go, we can choose to not go along. And then I think for me, the key is not going along from a spirit of like a sacred place and a love in the world. Like, because Mark Benioff, who, he, he's a, a head of Salesforce that's running the data dashboards that will run these impact markets. He's a protege of Larry Ellison of Oracle and Oracle always aspired to have the, 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 the global digital database of everything and track everybody and everything. And, you know, they read the art of war and, and Benioff said, you know, I want our, our competitors to come at us aggressively. Like we want aggression. Like I want to bring aggression to this thing. And I'm like, that's what I came to New York came away with is that, there's a divine dissatisfaction. Like you can, you can call people out on things from a standpoint of saying that we should, we can be better than this, that we can, that, that not from a, um, a shaming sort of point of view, but just saying the children deserve better. The natural world deserves better. We can, we can, we need to make that better. So yeah, this is just a couple slides. Kevin Werbach, he's in Philly. He's at the Wharton Business School. He's doing gamification and blockchain. So I'm pretty sure Mr. Werbach knows what's going on. He had a conference called After the Digital Tornado at Wharton and Shoshana Zuboff was there. So like the insiders know what the deal is. And in between, there's a little clip from Bloomberg Cities because Michael Bloomberg is all about the nudge and the digital and the tracking good behaviors. It's about okay, let's, 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 mention, let's mention Michael Bloomberg, because I think you're talking about he's a medical doctor and he's Bloomberg School of Health at Johns Hopkins. Am I wrong? So Michael Bloomberg um, was the former mayor of New York. 
Uh, he, he was mayor for a very long time. He graduated from Johns Hopkins. He was an electrical engineer and he was a trustee there. And they named the School of Public Health after him. His background wasn't public health. It was engineering. But he, he became known as like the public health mayor. Okay. And because so, you, you've said, and you, and you actually said it in this talk here today that um, Bill Gates stands out and takes the slings and arrows, but there are other people who are every, I'm, I'm reading between the lines here, but there are people behind him who are every bit as much involved. And you have said, Bill Gates is running the tracking and vaccination piece, but Bloomberg is in charge of your open air prison. Yeah, yeah. Well, so Bloomberg, he was the ambassador to the World Health Organization when he was mayor of New York. He was also um, ambassador to the United Nations for climate change. So both parts of um, that impact investing equation, you know, he was the one who was talking about putting the calorie counts, you know, on all the food. And he was very heavily involved in the privatization and pushing of educational technology in the New York City schools. Um, in lower Manhattan, he helped, helped implement something called the domain awareness system after 9-11 with Microsoft. That was the coordination of all of the camera systems. So, and they actually franchised that model and sold it to cities all over the country. And then he was the one who brought this idea of um, behavioral sciences, the um, behavioral insights group, which was from the United Kingdom to New York. It, this, they call it, it's like informally the, the nudge unit. They call it the nudge unit. And it's about behavioral economics. They so love you, this word. So they love this word nudge. Is that just because nudge is such a euphemism? Nudge is really like a carrot they're dangling a carrot, but it can also sort of be like you're getting kicked in the butt or you're getting a carrot. But nudging is just getting people going the direction that they want you to go. Right. Right. I mean, I guess it's supposed to sound kinder than like shoving people or forcing people. Um, but the other thing about the nudge is like there's a sense of um, uncertainty. So if you understand that these larger systems of profiling, guessing, tracking signals, intelligence are running, are meant to run the hedge funds, the hedge funds don't want a foregone conclusion because then you can't really bet on it. So they yeah, want I don't, to the game I, and I know play. you can't cover everything, but I just, can you just take two minutes and talk about how the hedge funds being able to bet on big groups of, forget about, forget about like, but but it's a good metaphor, you know, in 2008, how this huge collapse happened because they were batching mortgages, but they're batching poverty, they're batching social outcomes, and somebody wins if there's a negative outcome for the poor. Somebody wins big financially if there's a negative outcome for the poor. If you could flush that out just a little bit, because that's one of the things that's most disturbing that I've learned from you, yeah. is that we are set up right now with... with everything being blockchain, including social outcomes, and that you can batch groups of pre-kindergartners and bet for or against certain outcomes or bet on young adults' uh, rates of suicide. Like, can you just touch on a little bit how there will be an actual uh, incentive to potentially create horrible outcomes yeah. You know, let me let me walk through because I'm I'm getting close. I actually I kind yeah. of back ended that at the end. So yeah, I'll, I'll go quickly because I, I know we're sort of running out of time. So this is just setting up the pop the gaming part, but I, I will get to that. I think the GameStop scenario that you know has played out more recently. 
I think a lot of people who might not be super deep into the investing market, maybe they just have a 401k and the money goes away, but they don't think about it that much. Imagine that if you invest, you're making money if the companies that you're investing in do well. Most people are not imagining that you're making money on bad outcomes, right? And so the, the GameStop scenario in terms of exposing the short sales and the short selling helped in the public consciousness, I think, at least make more people aware of like, oh, it actually is a gamble and there's people betting both sides. So in that way, that was actually very helpful. I, you know, I don't think that it's the story that's necessarily being told. Whenever anything is lifted up in the media in that way, it's to, for a certain reason. If it wasn't significant, you wouldn't have heard about it. And I think some of it is about Ultimately, they're going to set up people with UBI to start gambling their UBI money with apps and, you know, things like that. I think that's probably where it's going. Like, are you a good financially savvy investor um, as an impact market? And, and actually, you know, as I mentioned, the, you know, the, the, the prophet of the Mormon church was at the NAACP opening. And then shortly thereafter, the, the church is involved in financial literacy programs in the South Side of Chicago. So I'm like, hmm. You know, is there going to be some sort of gamification of financial management coming in on the heels of that? And how does these, you know, investment apps play into it? Um, but I, yeah, so I will get to the short. It just, let, I can't like, I'm not good at like skipping forward. So I'll just, I'll go a little bit faster. This is all, there's going to be a massive wave of dispossessed people by the automation. If they're able to scale the automation and the robotics the way they imagine and continue to do the lockdowns and continue to restrict people's ability to um, have access to markets and small businesses, there will be many more people that become dependents on the state to some extent. Um, this, this program of impact investing is being actually coordinated in conjunction with the United Way systems. And this idea of Alice that's coming is, was actually came out of the Northern New Jersey United Way. And so this Alice, the assets limited income constrained employed, the working poor, which is the, the pool of people to be managed for what they call collective impact. That is in alignment with United Way as well as the universal pre-K. So I have a slide here that's like a bunch of vague people in suits going into a maze and it says collective impact. So it's, this is the game. We're funneling the poor into the game. This is a group image of Alice. Again, that's the United Way program. It's this very cheerful, perky, diverse group of adults. Um, but these are the supposed to be the working poor and there will be a whole lot more of them. And in, um, the January of 2019, the head of the Philadelphia Federal Reserve and our former mayor, Michael Nutter, who was worked very closely with Michael Bloomberg, gathered to have a pathways to prosperity gathering in Philadelphia about like managing the working poor. And the yes, moment so I've never said, seen a, I've never seen a, a better euphemism than this. Alice, asset limited, income constrained, employed. Don't they look happy? Well, they look happy. They look like professionals. They look like they all have like college degrees and are having a, their best life. Let's, let me say this again, because this is really hitting me hard. Alice is asset limited, income constrained, employed. Oh, it's the working poor. And they actually have huge campaigns, like advertising camps, like Alice is your babysitter. Alice is the woman that works at the florist. Al like everybody is Alice, right? And in fact, I think in Indiana, maybe it was, they would have like role-playing scenarios where they would say like, look, imagine you're Alice. Now you can be Alice, right? 
So most people, like, especially because United Way, like many companies sort of compel their employees to give to the United Way, right? But the United Way is also very deeply into out of school time learning and the universal pre-K and this community schools model that's going to be doing wraparound services for low income families tied to impact investing markets. Okay. So I listened to you give two talks and was like, what is wraparound services? Yeah. So wraparound services is, so again, I came out of this through education. I knew when they started to pitch the community school model, that it was not what most people would understand a community school to be. Like most people would think community school means, you know, the neighbors, the the local community garden, the, you know, that maybe some churches, you know, I'm not, it's like a little C community. Really, the community school is going to be the United Way, your local corporately run hospital, your local university that's running programs on you, like big C things, things that are not accountable to you, actually. And so if they're right now, and it's hard because there, there's great need, right? There's a lot of food insecurity. There's a lot of medical needs. There's a lot of emotional support needs that kids have, but they have... Under Obama, they gutted the student data privacy protection laws so that data can be collected in an education setting and made available in ways that are much less protective than HIPAA that you would have in a health record. That if if you were getting medical services or therapeutic services in a school, it's much less protected than if they were delivered in a clinical setting. So they're going to push telehealth, teletherapy, um, maybe food pantries with um, a DNA nudge band, you know, like, you know, maybe actually there, there was a food pantry in one of the schools where they were talking about the kids earning behavioral script to, to get extra. Like you could, if you had good behavior, like you could get earn an extra jar of peanut butter or something. A lot of that just sounds like they're incentivizing us to never leave our house. Well, I mean, and I'm not sure exactly how the community school model is going to work if we don't go back to school. So then it might be that the community school model is a drop-in center at the YMCA. You know, but they'll call it an education setting so they can get around the data protection, privacy protection protocol. But, but do you agree that a lot of these things really seem to all point one direction, which is, and you can live in your house and almost never leave? Yeah. I mean, if you see the video clip of the guy with the tele-existence robot, that's exactly what it looks like. A guy sitting in a sad, like, small room like gray walls and a computer screen and a haptic suit. Yeah. It is like the matrix kind of, you're not quite in a gooey pod, but you're getting close. So again, Alice is there. This is just hitting on the internet of bodies. Um, You know, this is a, a young guy doing workforce training and augmented reality headset. One of the things that's really important to keep an eye on is the, the digital identity system. There's a big push now for the digital driver's licenses so that's rolling out Colorado, other states, and Idemia. It's actually a French company, and they are a global leader in augmented identity. So they're, they're, this idea of your identity being layered for convenience in a digital way is coming. And I've noticed that in tr- doing some traveling, that almost all of the security kiosks in the airports now are Idemia. So using less sort of behavioral biometrics and, again, weaponizing our relation to the state to advance these impact markets and predictive profiling of our behaviors. A lot of these systems came, were piloted in humanitarian aid. Uh, Syrian refugees in particular were targeted uh, through retinal scans. So they were putting their food assistance 
tied to a digital wallet on a retinal scan, so tying their biometrics. In India was the early phase, so Aadhaar was the early phase digital identity, and that was hit by their demonetization when they said everyone had to bring in their cash, their $100 bills, and when the, the lines were days long, they would come up and say, well, you can get out of the line now if we set up a digital wallet for you, right? And so they were pushing, again, this is an image of a, a woman at a retinal scan pay, pay, payment terminal, uh, there's a the in the United Nations Refugee Commission is part of this the I guard uh, how they get your your retinal scan payment and then the Aadhaar has a, a small phone based device with a a little uh, cord sticking out where you have your your fingerprint your thumbprint to do the biometric and that is what gets very dangerous is once your digital identity starts to intersect with your biometrics especially if it becomes hacked because you can't really change your biometrics you know you can change a password you can't change your biometrics so. Um, this is just an image about, um, you know, essentially Ready Player One. You were talking about like the Matrix, like they're prepping us, right? The guy who wrote Ready Player One is from Austin and Austin is doing a lot of this tech, a lot of the blockchain. You know, I, I fell down the rabbit hole. You know, I found the Tradoc that the army has a mad scientist division. Go figure it. They've got a YouTube channel. You should check it out. Michael Crow does some talks over there. And, you know, I find things like mega city urban warfare and I'm like, oh, okay, well, how are they already planning, you know, the, the, the Army Joint Training Command in 2012, the megacity urban warfare? Like, how are we all getting in the megacities? Well, see, now now we're all going to be shoved in. There's actually an image. I, I'm not sure how this all works out, but behind of a freight container house in South Africa that they're building houses out of these freight containers, a la Ready Player One. So, again, so is this they're just showing how they want to take the inner cities and just put layers on top and just stack Mobile homes on top of mobile homes is because they want everybody in the population density because they're just easier to control that way. Just cram them all in there. Is that what we're seeing here? Well, I mean, you don't need to move around much if you get trapped in your house and the drone delivers your Amazon, you know, what you're allowed to order based on your DNA or whatever, you know, like, you know, and, and a lot of this will be new markets, right? Like there'll be whole new markets that open up to build these crazy freight container houses, you know, and, and there are a lot of them, like I've looked in Austin, there was something called, oh gosh, I'm spacing on the name of the house. They're tiny houses, um, Casita with a K, Casita with a K, and they were going to roll them off the assembly line like cars. And they were kind of like fancy freight containers with 60 internet of things sensors in them. But they were not, like, they had a mid-century modern look, you know, with like a rollout bed. So it's supposed to be, but it have a smart refrigerator and a smart toilet and a smart doorbell and a, you know, everything was smart. So it's like your data pod, your own data pod. That's just like, it is the telescreen. It is 1984. You can't get away from it. Yeah. They just make it sound so cute. I mean, casita, little house, you know, put a K on it. It's so cute. It's actually evil. It is super evil. Right. And again, I, I have an image here that's talking about the ghost dance, right? That, that it is like the reservations. Like we are all getting put on back on the reservation. And you should touch on that because I don't know if Americans realize that Canadians also uh, did the same thing to their native Americans. Yeah. They, they, they herded them onto a reservation. They made a bunch of promises. They lied They put them in a place that they had no way of making a living or doing what they had done for generations, which is a very proud people out, you know, fishing and hunting and they were peaceful. And, and then they put them on these reservations and they all got obese and diabetic and they're just completely dysfunctional. Like so many reservations are in America. I don't think most Americans know that Canadians are doing that. And you have a metaphor that's like, basically they're doing the same thing to us right now, all of us. 
I mean, and early on, like, you know, there were, there were, you know, the dispossession of Europeans off of their lands too. Like, and that came earlier, like the enclosure laws. Um, so this, this practice of not only physical relocation, but also erasure of the knowledge, erasure of the cultural knowledge, erasure of the spiritual connection and the land. And that's why to me, it feels like the ghost dance, which, which happened in the 1880s and 90s at the sort of the closing of the quote unquote, you know, frontier, um, that there was sort of a mystical experience, uh, a Paiute, uh, uh, gentleman, he had this vision of having a ceremonial dance that essentially was sort of like dancing time back or dancing to the point that like the colonization had not happened, like that their their situation was restored. And it was such a threat to the U.S. military, simply a peaceful, like it, it, it was multiple. It was sort of waves of communities that were doing this ceremonial dancing, but it was there were no weapons. It was just people doing this very deeply spiritual practice that you know, eventually it ended up in Wounded Knee, which was a massacre of hundreds and women, women and children and elders, like in the middle of the winter. Um, bec- and, and I would hate, you know, I'm not advancing that as the outcome, but I'm just thinking, I'm, I'm thinking through what is it about a, a spiritually grounded practice of like an authentic practice of supporting life um, in this moment where the empire is actually looking at colonizing us through uh, biotechnology, right? What, I mean, are there, are there connections? Are there lessons to be learned as we face this? Well, um, I'll tell you that in Utah, and it's actually not my idea, it's Dr. Pam Poppers, and um, you should definitely connect with her, but we are forming Thursday groups all over the state so that we have connection to other people who see what's going on and who want to connect with each other. And, you know, we don't know if, Telegram will be deplatformed. We know that we're all going to Facebook jail over and over and over again. And I could have the rug pulled out from under me on Facegram where Facegram <laughs> on Facebook where I've built a career for 13 years now. Like all that could go away. Well, we need that face to face. And so so we have Thursday groups. And right now that's that's one answer to your question is start a Thursday group. If you're feeling this pain and if you feel like you're being herded onto a reservation and we're being stripped of culture and we're being stripped of our children's future and you see what's going on, you're hearing this, start a Thursday group. If you're in Utah, go to takeactionforfreedom.com and just look at our Thursday groups, join one, start one. We need 200 groups all over the state. But if you're not in Utah, you know, Pam Popper's trying to start this all over the country. Go to her site, which is Make Americans Free Again dot com make americans free again dot com in utah we we have our we we do it ourselves because we have so much going on that's very state specific yeah. and we're we're very very involved we've been like i've i've run dozens and dozens of protests and i've been in the media against my will many many times it's not about me it's just that we've we've tried everything there is to try and we've failed at most of it and so right now we're trying to figure out well how can we stand up to this in ways that are meaningful that's one yeah. Right now, that is the most important thing that I think that I'm, I can be involved in is I don't even live in Utah. I live in Florida now because I ran. Those who can will, they'll yeah. run to where they're treated best. But in, in Utah, like if you live there, start or join a Thursday group so that you can connect to people before they pull their rug out from under and you don't, literally don't even have a way to connect online. So. Sorry yeah. to break in, but that's one no, thing. No, that's good. And I've been having soup like over the winter. I would like once a month, I would have people over for soup. And then, I mean, people are coming from like an hour away or two hours away to come have soup. But like, that's how much people are craving 
you know, social company of like-minded people. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm, I'm getting close to that. I think this is continuum of care pathways. That's the game. They'll put you on a game of self-improvement. And th- these are two screenshots from a really compelling video. And maybe I'll send it to you so you can link it short. It's like two and a half minutes called Meet Kathy. And, oh. and essentially... The, the two, the mother and daughter are put on pathways because the man in their house has been in prison and they say, Oh, Joe will do better if his wife and daughter are better. So we're going to make sure the wife stops smoking and the daughter does her asthma management. And so they give them all of these task assignments. And every time it, this slide says housing, employment, behavioral health and medical and, and a start. And then on the other side, there's a, a sort of a, a banner that they run under. And and when you cross the banner, there's a dollar sign on the other side. So if you do the behaviorist thing that you are told, the nonprofit that is managing you gets paid off and the impact investors get paid off. And it's, can we, we, do we have time to show this right now? Because even though I listen to you on my phone and I don't see all your slides, this is the first time I've actually sat here and seen your slides. The thing that I think is so powerful about this is how, it it really illustrates the nudges. So they basically are showing how, well, Joe, he's in prison, but Joe will do better in prison if his wife, Kathy, I'm making this up. I don't know if Kathy is the caseworker or the, or the the, the social worker, but yeah. Okay. Well, and, and I don't mean to steal your thunder, but Kathy later, it turns out either was a social worker and then just got replaced by a digital, you know, whatever. But Kathy then becomes like not a person, but Let's say that the wife's name is um, Sarah and the daughter's name is Mackenzie. So Sarah has to, it is nudged to stop smoking and Mackenzie is, is nudged to stop missing class by taking her asthma medications. Well, who would disagree with that? Who would right. disagree with that? Those seem like wonderful outcomes. You guys use your critical thinking skills <laughs> and realize that this is how it's going to be pitched to you. This is how your slavery is going to be pitched to you. Is that you're Sarah? Like, why wouldn't we want Sarah to stop smoking? Why? Why would we not jo- want Joe to get out of prison and come back to his non-smoking wife, who is now a better mother because she quit smoking? And why wouldn't we want Mackenzie to take her her uh, asthma medication so she stops missing so much school? Okay, that's all well and good, except that they were literally put into slavery to get there. Yeah, and, so and somebody's other, making money yeah. off of it. I mean, and, and, and essentially and, and, this impact market means that they can be under permanent surveillance. And, and, and very rich people are making money on whether Kathy succeeds or fails at stopping smoking. And what if it, what if it's super lucrative to keep Kathy actually smoking and maybe double her smoking? Right. Well, but, but somebody, might Kathy, be shorting, somebody might be shorting the outcomes, right? So somebody's betting she stops smoking and, and does the things and then somebody's betting she doesn't. And that's, that's part of the, the, what works you're paying. That's what, works. that's what is so disturbing. And so everybody just needs to get clear on that. Sorry, Kathy's the social worker, but Sarah, look, in my little made up, whatever Sarah is, is the wife of Joe, the prisoner. Okay. But what if there is a financial incentive to make Sarah smoke more? And that is entirely possible. Exactly. Well, and, and the one thing that I want to mention too, is if, if you understand that you're living in a smart environment, Say the, the continuum of care pathway is that someone is coming out of prison and they're going to have a work assignment or a job training assignment. And so that's packaged as debt, like a social impact debt product. And somebody's shorting the guy, you know, this, the, the options on this person. Imagine you're a smart environment, like you're waiting for the bus that day to get to your work because you need to be there on time. 
and the bus is detoured and you don't get a notice, right? These smart environments could start conspiring to make certain outcomes happen or not happen, especially once you start layering in AI. Like, because so, I have terrible bus karma. Like, my family, they, they go down and the bus comes within, like, five or ten minutes. For me, I'm always waiting 40 minutes, like, looking at my watch going, you know, did I miss it? Is it detoured? Like, the person that's getting shorted is never catching the bus on time. And it might not be their fault. And they're never going to be shown to us as the um, the little two-and-a-half-minute video of Kathy, the social worker, helping Joe get out of prison and Sarah stop smoking and Mackenzie not missing school anymore and doing better. You guys, this is, this is the lie. This is the thing they show us. It's like, exactly. what could be wrong with this? Well, here, I'm going to tell you a, a wrong thing real quick. So this one is actually, this slide is from the impact management project. It's small. It's up at the top. It's where the orange arrow is. So there's a, it says uh, the impact management project supporting the sustainable development goals. And then it has a little rainbow wheel that everyone's very familiar with the great reset. It's often a pin that people are wearing. And so I have an arrow. They're talking about sustainable development and this environmental social governance investing. And that's where all of the money is going to be channeled into these impact metrics, impact markets. And the arrow is at one of the goals. It's like a, a bowl of soup with heat coming off of it. It's goal two, which is hunger. And this connects to Utah in that, um, you know, I was watching a, a panel discussion that has since been taken offline, but it was a winter summit in Salt Lake City. They have a winter summit for social impact investors and the Sorensen family, I think, were the sponsors and Ronald Cohen, who's a, the creator of these social impact bonds in the United Kingdom. He gave opening remarks. And there's a gentleman, Ian Galloway, from the San Francisco Federal Reserve, and he's often on these panels. And the panel discussion was actually about youth incarceration. But at the end, in the Q&A, they closed the panel and they opened it up for questions. And there was someone in the audience who spoke up and she said, you know, I work at a local food pantry and I know that food insecurity is a huge problem. And so you may have all of these other social problems, but I can guarantee you that you're not going to get a good result if people are chronically hungry. Like to me, hunger is the baseline issue like and shelter that needs to be resolved before you're going to get any out good outcome in these other areas and you never create impact markets for hunger. Why is that? Like, why are we left out of the social impact finance space? And then Ian Galloway of the Federal Reserve said, well, that's very interesting. But you see, in this model, we can't make the money unless we can come up with a cost offset. We have to justify it by saying we're saving money down the line. And we have not figured out the cost offset for hunger. And then he floated sort of the idea, well, perhaps, perhaps the cost offset could be test scores, meaning we would feed hungry children if it improved their test scores. And that would be the cost offset would be the, the, um, that they are, you know, filling the, meeting the achievement gap. And that, that if the, the, the hungry, the children who are hungry ate food and then did better on their standardized test, then that might make the impact deal work. And the sad thing was, is like the response of the people yeah. wasn't like, yeah, how in the world can people say you're only going to feed children if they can perform according to the contract? Yeah. Everybody's sitting there nodding like, oh, like, okay. okay, that sounds pretty good. Okay, let me know when you've got the equation figured out, you know, and that's in Utah. And so that to me just shows the sort of the profanity of this. Um, 
this is this is just an image that I have about the, the Fed wallets. I think this is coming back up again. I, I heard something today with Janet Yellen and digital currency and the Fed dollars, these Fed wallets in Australia I had mentioned there's there's an image here from Commonwealth Bank of Australia. They're working with uh, the disability rights. And again, this overlaps with vaccine injury because I know there's probably a lot of uh, people who may be injured who fall under under special needs population who need as- assistance. So in Australia, they're actually using blockchain identity to program their disability money and their compliance with that money. These are other control systems. This is what I mentioned about the food stamps, the food SNAP, the, the food assistance that they would create. And this is an image from the Illinois Blockchain Task Force report. This was advanced in 2018. This policy, as far as I know, is not yet in place, but it is a thought experiment about how they could use digital identity and blockchain. That for someone receiving a public benefit who is applying to welfare, they would get assigned in this image a digital identity. Um, they would be assigned a benefit wallet that would have tokenized assistance in that, whether that's food or education or health or what have you in that wallet. And then there would be this choice architecture. And this is the nudge we were talking about. When you go to the store, you can make the healthy choice or the unhealthy choice according to what they've decided that's prescribed. And if you buy the apple, they will kick you back a little money to your wallet. And it all looks very logical until you understand that this person applying for assistance may very well be working three jobs may be living out of their car, may live in a food desert, may not have access to transportation to get fresh groceries every day. Like Food, food, food desert being inner city, there is no produce section, et cetera. Right. You can't get the good food. Like you don't have that choice. You're eating out of a bodega or you're, you know, you're, you're not having healthy options. So it sort of puts it on the person to make the right choice, even though the social construct in which they're operating may make it almost impossible to do what's required and then the idea in my mind would be ultimately the benefit would start to be gradually reduced to the point that if you you could only make it to the end of the month if you always made their right choice. Yeah, see, see you you have you have this background as a political liberal, especially a social political liberal. And I have to just throw in there because my audience is mostly affluent and I, I'm not I'm not trying to attract this crowd, but most of my audience on my website and people who follow me, we know this because Facebook surveils you people, <laughs> is, <laughs> is affluent, white, upper middle class, educated women. Okay. So yeah. that's mostly who follows me. But you got to realize that, well, I remember once that I, um, I want to say 30 years ago, there's a Wall Street Journal um, series on the plight of the inner city and women in the inner city and how, you know, for instance, it's rewarded to have children when you're 16. Like that's like a, like a, a positive. It's considered a positive if you're inner city black woman, for instance, just, just a cultural thing, because if you have two, you get a higher check than, than if you have one. And, and, and they actually like went in and interviewed all these people in the inner city who the places where they go to purchase food. I don't, I need to say this because yeah. like I said, most of the people listening right now are upper middle class, educated white women. Yeah. Who Some of them haven't worked their whole life. They haven't had to, They're, they've been taking care of a home and a family, but they literally went in and they um, interviewed all these people in the inner city. This is important to know. And, and not only do they not have access to produce in their stores, the stores that they could walk to or they could get to with whatever, transportation access they had to 
um, had no produce section. They had yeah. no access to vegetables or fruits. They might have some potatoes and some onions. Bananas or some couple, apple, couple apple, old delicious apples. apples. <laughs> couple old crappy looking apples. And so they did that. But they also like would interview them and there were quotes. And I remember this even though it was 30 years ago because I was so stunned because I came from the upper middle class, yeah. right? Even though I'm from a family of 10 or whatever. But I just want to point this out for those of you who are not in this demographic that they literally were interviewing these women. And here some of them were like 32-year-old grandmothers or, you know, 17-year-old mothers or whatever. And they're just even working in these to meet the expectations of getting what is literally a pretty meager benefit. Like this is not deluxe. Yeah, this isn't. It's like a job. It's almost like your full-time job to meet all of the requirements needed to get this basic thing. So it's right to just... To just be able to eat. And they, they literally said, well, McDonald's wouldn't serve it to us if it weren't good for us. Like, this is the kind of thing, this is the level of education. This is the level of understanding that they have. So this is just going back to your point. Like, let, let's just really realize where we're at here in terms of most of humanity. And yeah. This is I not mean, to judge. Food access is, judge. but the other piece of it is if you, if, if people have a chance to look at this image, the choice architecture of there is a preferred choice. And there is a not preferred choice. And we will incentivize what the uh, the powers, the authority figures have decided is the preferred choice. So, And who, who's case, to say that the apple is the rewarded choice? Right. And yeah. someone has decided, and this seems pretty, okay, so maybe that seems more straightforward. But imagine that is a, um, you have a health voucher and you have two choices of treatment. And one is preferred and one is not preferred. And, and one is incentivized and one is not. Imagine you are you have a choice of an education curriculum. Now everybody's learning online, right? Everybody's learning at home. Which curriculum is are the people at the top going to incentivize and which ones are they not going to incentivize? And so there are many aspects of, you can imagine in the ways that a mental health treatment, well, we will pay for telehealth because we can get data that will our teletherapy because we can get an impact market, but we're not going to pay for talk therapy because we're not getting the data on that to ensure that you're having the proper impact. And so all of these choices, who is deciding? And if you understand that the people at the top, if the government or these public private partnerships are not accountable to voters or are really accountable to like Google and Goldman Sachs, where do regular people fit in anymore? Where do kids, where do vulnerable people fit in? Like who's, who can protect them from, and it's, and soon it will be automated. So you can't even get anybody on the phone to say like, Hey, what are my rights? Like, what are, this isn't fair. I want to get something fixed in this system. It just becomes an algorithm. Coded Uh, nudges, coded nudges. Coded nudges. This is, and this is coming from both sides because this, so I have uh, a slide here. It's from the Heritage Foundation and they're talking about using financial technology and parent choice in education. So this is something that parents need to be very clear about because I know there's a lot of overlap between sort of the health freedom community and homeschooling communities is that I think a lot of people are under the impression that if you pull out of the public system that you can protect the kids and maybe they'll give you some money to pay for things, right? But if you understand that we're looking at a future of robotics and AI badges of skills, like we actually have to refuse the whole program because the vouchers that they're going to get you know, in, in this, this is a, in it, something from the Heritage uh, Foundation, which is conservative. It talks about using mobile money innovation for school choice and using fintech for education choice. That's going to be programmable money with nudges and strings attached and data collection. 
And so I think some people know that and aren't telling. And some people, I, you know, I know quite a few parent activists who do know. Uh, Lynn, Lynn Taylor is in North Carolina and she's excellent on this. And Alice Linehan and my friend Linda, they are in this working in the homeschooling space and understanding the danger that's coming. Yeah, because right now they're paying homeschoolers not very much, like $2,000 a year or something to just follow their curriculum. And then they get they get dependent on it. Right. But fintech. Fintech, what is financial technology? So like digital currency, um, programmable money, these e-wallets, e-vouchers. And then to me, so what I'm realizing is in this spatial reality world, if you're going to earn badges, not in a school, but at a library, at a makerspace, at a community theater, at the ice skating rink, if you're, you know, you're going to do your recreation doing classes at the ice rink, they're going to collect data on you about the impact data. They're going to check if you get competencies in whatever they've decided you need competencies are for your gym credit. And so when schools become unbundled and pushed into the community, if you take the voucher, like our library is a key player in all of this. I mean, I I think most homeschool and unschooling families used to use their library a lot. Our library is a key, key figure in doing the digital badging and the surveillance technology as depressing as that is. Unbundled. Yeah, it's all unbundled. And so when you unbundle it, it means if you want to truly educate your child outside the system. You both need to build a parallel environment that is a separate library, a separate theater, a separate sports area that isn't taking the voucher and find a way to financially support that. And then you have to imagine what is the economic, um, you know, what is the career option for kids who don't have badges? Because, you know, I have a 19 year old, thank goodness they came through this whole system and they weren't subject to the worst of it, but they don't have any badges which might be fine for the next 10 years when they're in their 20s or early 30s, but maybe when they're 40 and they're competing against a 30-year-old that has 500 badges, head start on them in the AI program because the AI is assigning gig work. What does that look like, right? Like we have to refuse the whole thing. And that's why when I was in education, they wanted the public school families to argue with the charter school families, to argue with the homeschool families, to argue with the private school families, the parochial. We were all arguing with each other. Like we're better. No, you're better. You're like, we were fighting the wrong thing. And then you, you figured out, you figured out that that's what they wanted you to do. They wanted you to do that. And you figured that out eventually. Yes. I mean, that's to me, like we need a broader awakening as to the true nature of this threat and a unifying stance to protect all of the kids. Yeah. I don't want any kids subjected into an AI feedback loop. Because, you know, that's not what's good for the earth. So I, I just wanted, I, well, I skipped backwards. Um, uh, I think the same thing with the education vouchers is going to come with the health savings accounts. I think the health savings accounts are going to morph the Medicare for all. They're going to have some kind of carve out, and then you can have a voucher to spend, but only on evidence-based wellness programs that do the data. Which, so I, which ev- evidence-based means drugs and surgery, not anything that I actually want yeah. in medicine. Yeah. Something that is going to d- deliver the data. And I do believe that what's coming with these passports is essentially a biosecurity state where the threat of pandemic illness is used to control populations, to force um, people to keep their medical records in a certain way in order to access, access to live in society and that the creation of the electronic health record is central to that whole enterprise. And that uh, Zeke Emanuel, who was the architect of the Affordable Care Act under Obama, 
his brother Rahm Emanuel, like Chicago is the futures trading market. Like they knew this. So I initially thought that the digital identity system was going to come through online blockchain transcripts. But I think it's just, I think it, it may also come in there. There's a lot of different pilots, but that the electronic health record, that is going to be this common pass, the Israeli green pass, the Los Angeles unified digital daily pass, the New York state Excelsior pass, that your electronic health record program is going to be integrated on blockchain into these past systems, which again, have a history in the reservation systems and in apartheid systems, um, you know, in the Holocaust, like the idea of regulated passes based on people's um, position in society is a huge problem. So again, these are some of the passes I, I mentioned, I would talk about geofencing, this idea that sensor technologies that are now in place in contact tracing and proximity that you would have wearable technologies. I have an image here of two people in an office and they're wearing wristbands that, you know, they beep if you get within six feet of each other, or they might register if you're having exposure, um, these uh, security bubble COVID elements. Uh, there's the QR code daily pass for Los Angeles that they're asking kids to uh, do a daily health screenings and a weekly COVID test to access face-to-face -face, uh, education. That's through Anthem Health, which is a portal. And then this tracking of people in smart environments, they're already doing it in China. And they're tracking people on parole, on blockchain, and tying it to their credit scoring. So this ability to connect wearable technology to blockchain identity systems, whether that's an, edu an education record or a healthcare record, that's already in, in play. And that's not just China, because a lot of the operatives in China are actually coming out of the Silicon Valley and out of New York. That International Electrical Engineering Association, IEE, they're based in New York City. Like, they're the ones who got that set up. So, yeah, again, contracting, dealing with your world through digital contracts, smart contracts, uh, this is, that is what the spatial web is. Um, this image talks about um, HSTP, a universal spatial protocol standard, so that you can hyperport, you can hyperport users and smart assets between web spaces. They're virtual, they're thingifying us. They, the plan is to thingify us. And this is all real people. I'll share the slide deck with you. People can look these things up. Um, this is an image of a school with all sorts of smart sensor technologies on the bus, at the reception desk, in the lobby, in the library. Everything is like you have to check in with your wearable technology that you're allowed. There's like 10 different spots on here that have sensor check-ins. So that's what the spatial web looks like. It looks like your physical environment, layer, your access to whether you can use the lockers or the vending machine or the health center or go to the principal's office. It's all contingent on uh, a student identity card. I mean, it's interesting. They talk about storing your blood, <laughs> blood type on your student identity card. So these, these like digital systems interfacing with your built environment. Um, Internet of agreements, again, more smart contracts. This is an image below of some folks in China. This is a prototype where they're videoing a family interaction with a book. And that is unlocking an impact token for social impact investors. So this is Shanzai City, and they're working with IXO. So they're actually, it's the scary uh, finance and blockchain of Switzerland with the AI and facial recognition of Asia blended. So this is this model that we're going to spy on people with an iPad and grade their behavior um, to keep them on the continuum of care pathway and make social impact markets. And this is all framed as progressive and sustainable. Again, uh, 
these are things are coming on it, like being stored in your online identity through XAPI protocols. There's an education one that's coming out of Tin Can API, and they talk about learning happens everywhere. We can track it. We can track that learning if it is happening on a video, on an iBook, if you're wearing using wearable technology and you're exercising, we can track you and upload all of that data into your learning locker. Same with healthcare. We can track your healthy behaviors if you're performing your life in a healthy way. And, you know, I have an image here of satellites tracking livestock with these sort of shock colors because that's what it feels like. Everything is being tracked. Um, and this is just the last bit on pay for success. I'm just going to go back to the finance piece. We have a problem. I sort of describe it as a plumbing problem. Uh, we have an immense amount of wealth that is locked up in a very small group of individuals. We have a lot of poverty at the bottom. But how do they keep it going? Because within the capital program, you have to continue to move money, to circulate money, and to grow. And that's why the last economic crash, everyone said, go out and still spend money. Because if you stopped spending the money, the whole Ponzi scheme would fall apart. So what they're going to do to all the people at the bottom of the economic pyramid to maintain the liquidity, and this is an image here with, I made a little video called Gambling on Our Futures with Morgan of JP Morgan, and this guy in a top hat, and there's money sort of circulating around in a circle. To keep the liquidity for Morgan, they're going to make these impact bonds, and that's what we've been talking about the whole time, pay for success, social impact finance, social bonds, social impact bonds, and all sorts of social problems, whether that's pre-K, home visits, addiction, incarceration, mental illness, unemployment, workforce training, everything that you can imagine about your life is going to be reframed, not as an opportunity, but you are the problem and you are a debt, a potential debt burden. Okay, we, we just have to say this. There's this headline, blockchain of trust, digitizing a mother's journey through pregnancy. The story of baby Abdallah is a woman of color here with her baby, the story of baby Abdallah, one of the first children born worldwide, whose journey was tracked entirely using blockchain technology. Yep. I mean, and the thing is, for me, I'm coming to a larger awareness of like reproductive justice, right? Like, I mean, I think in many respects, choice is framed in a certain way. But these these technologies are piloted on women in develop, you know, in the global south. Um, a lot of times they include um, their their extensions through humanitarian aid of big pharma. And so the question of if they're tracking your prenatal journey attached to a big pharma program of prenatal care, do you have a choice? And if you choose another choice that is feels like a more appropriate or culturally appropriate or better fit for your family, will you be identified as a non-compliant patient according to big pharma and then targeted when it's time to deliver your baby as being a problem, right? Does, does that put you, and then what does that mean if the blockchain investing in prenatal care becomes a social impact metric? And again, we're talking about somebody shorting. So we hear a lot about disparities in maternal health outcomes that like, you know, black women often have, they're having worse outcomes in medical settings. Okay, well now they, they're framing that they're gonna make that an impact opportunity. Well, what happens if someone is shorting it, right? What happens if the plan is that they actually have worse outcomes? Well, Even though they say that it's let's, just, let's drive that home. it doesn't work. Let's drive that home. What she's saying, if these 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 uh, words and this jargon is kind of going over your head because you haven't been inside the finance system, because it was actually a struggle for me to learn what it is that exactly that Allison is saying. She's saying that there will be big big motives to influence 
huge blocks of people to have horrible things happen to them because some rich person gets richer. Yep. If we, if we just boil it down to its, to its essence. And because these sensor networks are being imposed, it's kind of a bit at arm's length. Like people, they, it'll be like, Oh, like, you know, it'll be like watching terrible things on the news. Like it's sad, but it's not the the immediacy of it because it's just automated. It's right. But when I did my three part Alison McDowell for dummies and took like my 45 pages of notes from you're watching your mini talks and boiled it down because hundred percent of everyone who had seen your stuff was like, she's amazing, but I don't understand it. Um, yeah, I just, you know, I had, I had to boil it down to very, very simple, basic terms. And thank you. We, 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 we need to understand, like people don't understand what shorting is. They don't understand what hedge funds are. And I'm working on a better glossary. I have a friend who takes notes on my stuff too. And he gave me like a homework assignment of about four more pages of terms I need to work on. Your glossary needs a glossary because your glossary is so glossary like, you know, <laughs> your glossary is so glossary like collective knowledge building. We can all work on it together. <laughs> no, it's, I mean, it's super brilliant. Which, what, what you've um, been able to understand here, but like for people who've literally never, ever uh, studied any of this, we, um, I, I don't think we realize how we have set up a system that, they can stand in front of a group of people and talk about this like it is utopia when it is actually dystopia. It is totally dystopia. It's automated. I keep saying it's like going to be theological techno-fascism because I'm really worried about the religious institutions involvement in this. And that's why I feel really strongly that as much as this is a spiritual engagement, many of the institutions are being weaponized in ways that I think some people know, but a lot of people don't fully appreciate yet. And it, 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 to me, that's why, like when I went to Tulsa, like a year ago, January, it was a very small group of people. It was just like 20 people. And my friend, Julianne, who's a, a wonderful like mom and a former professor. And she had been at a school board meeting and they'd been closing schools and shutting down the program for the deaf and shutting down the program for the, the native American program. And it had been like one of those school board meetings till midnight and she is was passing out flyers. And there was a woman who, who came and she picked up a flyer. She didn't know Julianne at all. And it was the next day. And she's like, I knew I was supposed to come. And she brought five people and there were only like 20 people in the room. So like a fourth of the people who came with her and, you know, I was framing this and I always explain it the way I explain it, because that's just how I see it, you know, as sort of racial capitalism, this extension of slavery and the, these really d- sort of deep things. And, you know, she was with Oral Roberts, you know, she's an evangelical Christian and she was like with me, right. She understood it. And so I think in many cases, we've been set up to think, like to presume people because of how we imagine they might be, would understand us or not understand us without actually engaging or like being vulnerable and putting ourselves out there. And sometimes when you do that, you have like unexpectedly wonderful outcomes because there are like a lot of authentic, caring people if they just knew, but they need to know first. And that's so... Like when I started talking about this four or five years ago, my, my friend who he, he does, he does healing work on the land, gardening work, and he's very Catholic. And he, he said, you're a Jeremiah and I'm not very religious at all. <laughs> so I had to go look it up and like, I was like, oh, well, that's an assignment, right? You know, <laughs> the Babylonian. Jeremiah is a watchman on the tower. And I've, 
tried to tell God that I don't want to do this. I don't want to do this. I don't want to be attacked every day, all day, like I have been for over a year now. But, you know, it's my assignment and I'm not trying to be a martyr. I'm not trying to be a martyr, but like I've tried to lay it down and I've said, hey, God, can I just be done now? Like I've taken, have I not taken enough slings and arrows? And he's like, no. And in fact, everything you've done in your life to this point was for this. Yeah. And so here we are. And I think you're the same, whether you're, you may not be a religious person or not, but you know, I had to repent. I had to repent. I had to repent and come back to God when this happened, because I saw that we were getting so far from God that we're an insult to God. Yeah. Well, and I think that's what I'm saying. Like, I think we're on this path for a reason. Like, I think we connected for a reason, you know, And I don't think it's supposed to end in the world being turned into a planetary computer. That's why I do feel that there is something much bigger at work here, but we have to be able to um, articulate it and help people stand, face it, you know, and, and refuse it, you know, to understand it for what it is, what it truly is, because it's painted in such glowing terms. It's candy coated. It's like candy coated poison really. Um, so I'm really getting close to the end. This is this social impact bond concept. The idea, um, I have an image here. There's Morgan, the guy in the top hat. He says that there's a, a certain cost, which I represent as a little rectangle of a public program investment. So that might be pre-K or it might be workforce training for people in prison, or it might be addiction treatment recovery. Um, and it's a smaller rectangle. And then there's a bigger rectangle that would be the cost if you didn't have an intervention. And then within that big rectangle is a smaller one that says that you've reduced the need. So you've reduced um, the expected harm by investing in the public program. And so the difference between what you would have paid if you didn't, quote unquote, fix it um, and and the, the cost of your program is sort of the space in which they develop what's called like their return on their investment. They get their money back and then they have a small slice that is the return. And so most people don't understand. They say, well, Allison, I don't get it. Like that, it doesn't seem like poverty is a super investable like market. How do you make money on poverty? And it's not in the slice of money that you're extracting from the government, like the the bonus payment on top of the paying back the pre-K program. It's going to be in the bundling, the gambling game of the, the securities, the futures markets on people, like the people nares. Um, but that game cannot happen until you actually have the conditions of the game in play, until you have the Alice's, the asset limited, income constrained, employed, poor, running your rat raise maze with your their wearable technology on the pathways that Kathy, you know, your the community care coordinator has given them. Everybody Kathy gives everybody a pathway and tracks them from space, you know, and, and makes this run. And then the, then the hedge funds are betting, but they can't bet and if the bond markets don't exist. So that's what the social impact bonds. Uh, Ronald Cohen, uh, he, he's at the bottom here. He's he's the father of uh, venture uh, capital in the United Kingdom. He's a Harvard MBA and he's a key figure. He's kind of like Bloomberg. He's the guy behind the curtain that nobody really knows about. Um, and I will I will. Recommend recommend my, my, my friend, Raul Diego. He writes for Mint Press and he did several really good articles about both IBM and the COVID pass and the human capital bond markets. And, and I think is hoping to do some more work on Ronald Cohen, but he's a key player. This was sort of my smoking gun image uh, from 2012. It's a, it's from a slide share from the Kauffman foundation, I believe out of Kansas city and ready nation. That's the Robert Duger on the social impact bonds. And on this slide share, they talked about 
um, what social impact bonds would do, that they would help state budgets, they would improve early childhood, they would improve workforce, and that the assets of these social impact bonds, it specifically has three hash marks, and it says that the, the assets will be able to be bought by for-profit and non-profit investors, okay? So they can be bought as investments, that they can be traded among the investor worldwide. So they're creating a global market and that they can also be aggregated as asset-backed securities. So those three things were like, when I found that, that was the smoking gun. They said exactly those programs, those children are going to be the next asset-backed securities, the next toxic bundle mortgages, our children and poor people and incarcerated people and refugees. So, so your your children will be as profitable whether they win or lose as huge packages of mortgages are. Debt. Children, instead of being imagined as gifts to a community, like what, how, you know, what are you going to bring? Like, are you a musician? Are you a, a scientist? Are you like an art? Like, what is your, what? No, they're like, how, what, what a burden are you? How much of a burden? That, that baby in Tanzania, Adela or whatever, how much of a burden is she? How much can we make on her betting on her life? I, I wonder what this will mean to parents who are having babies once they understand this, once they begin to understand this, what it will mean to them when deciding whether to keep or sacrifice a specific gender or what it means. I mean, you know that that China is full of the millennials and China are all boys and they'll never have sex. They'll never have a family. They'll never have children because all of their cohort who were female are at the bottom of a well and are a skeleton because their parents were only allowed to have one child and a girl was a liability and a boy was an asset. And so I wonder what we're creating here when we create incentives and disincentives for a specific kind of child and whether our children become asset or liability in terms of the pre-K choices we make for them. Right. And I mean, how can you put an unborn life on blockchain? I mean, to me, and that's what I'm saying, like people of faith, like if, if you need to be asking if your, you know, faith community has investments in these ESG portfolios, do they come with surveillance play tables? Are they putting kids on blockchain? Are they tracking low-income women behavior on game gamified apps? Because, you know, I watched a really good lecture by a gentleman. His name is Calvin Schirmerhorn, and he was looking at the finance of the domestic slave trade. And specifically the early 19th century, like the 1820s through the 40s. And this was when they had closed off the international trade, but they were still moving families from like the Chesapeake tobacco area into the sugarcane plantations in Louisiana and cotton. And how they did those financial transactions because it wasn't one unified currency at that point. And New York was playing a key role in, in managing the paper as the transfers, as the trusted third party, which is going to be blockchain. And he, he unpacked this idea of hypothecation which is drawing the equity that the um, the sugarcane producers would both maintain control of their enslaved assets, people, human beings identified as assets, but then they could mortgage them and use that value to build uh, sugar refineries that would enable them to make more money as opposed to simply just shipping the commodity, right? So this body was used twice. And I feel like in many respects, we are approaching this parallel moment with this idea of hypothecation and also blockchain as being a trusted third party, 
Um, you know, Paul Tudor Jones set a lot of this up. He's a, you know, Tudor Investments through the Robin Hood Foundation in the Harlem Children's Zone. And these wraparound services he was providing have equations tied to managing the poor. And, you know, his background was in cotton futures. Like that was literally, he got, he's from Tennessee. He got to start in cotton futures trading. And so there are these weird, I mean, not weird, but there are these very, these echoing parallels across time that are we going back? Like, are there people at Wharton who are looking back at the domestic slave finance programs to figure out how to do these deals? Because this image that I have here is of a gentleman, his name is Christopher Riccardi. And two years ago, Michael Crow with Arizona State University and Global Silicon Valley, so it's called the ASU GSV Annual Conference, they bring all the ed tech people together. And there was a panel on income sharing agreements, which is being pitched as the, the answer to student loan debt, that you will have sign a contract and someone will invest in your education or training or reskilling, and that you will have your wages garnished. If you get a job that meets the conditions of the contract, your wages will be garnished for a certain amount of time according to the contract. And this was modeled at Purdue, Purdue Global, actually. And so in 2018, there was a gentleman on the stage saying, within a couple of years, we're going to have really the proofs of concept for this, that we are going to be able to securitize that debt and open up giant new equity markets. Okay. So they were already talking about it. And at that time, I'm imagining four-year college or maybe community college plus two-year college that they were going to securitize that in 2018. Well, guess what? So now we're a year into uh, you know, the global economic takedown and many people are losing jobs that they loved and care about. If you own a restaurant, if you, you know, run a small business, you're a florist, what have you, those jobs are going away. The next jobs are, you can code the digital jail. You can do big pharma R and D for transhumanism, or you can do smart energy and figure out how to power it all. And in New Jersey, the governor, Phil Murphy of New Jersey, um, he was setting up these income sharing agreements. He's former Goldman Sachs. They're doing the social impact bonds. And so they're going to reskill all the people into to building the fourth industrial revolution. Well, the platform they are going to use to securitize the income sharing agreements, they're called ISAs, is called Edley. And this guy, Christopher Riccardi, set it up. And he's the grandfather of the collateralized debt obligations. And it says, literally, this is the Wall Street Journal. The grandfather of CDOs is trying to do for higher education what he did for mortgages. Okay, back up. Say it in English. Lots of jargon. <laughs> Sorry. Well, they're essentially going to, as we were talking about securitizing, like trading debt on pre-K, on the other end, they're going to package debt tied to reskilling people who've been pushed out of their jobs and made to do jobs they might hate that the billionaire class wants to do to build their global prison. Yeah, because you've, you've, so said, you've said that the entire healthcare system, the entire teaching industry, all the flight attendants, all these people are part of the global police state. They didn't know that. It's not what they're no. school right now. They hate their jobs. And that's what they are, is they're the global police state. Right. And the securitization, there's a platform. Like, it, actually, they have to build these products, like, legally and contractually, these collateralized debt obligations, the bundled debt that the hedge funds gamble on. So the guy who did it for the mortgages that crashed the global economy last time, well, guess what? Now he's doing it with retraining debt and he's doing it in partnership with a governor that's tied to Goldman Sachs, you know, 27 years ago. He's a Democrat. You know, after my last talk, you know, someone sent my thing, I think to Glenn Beck, you know, and, and was interested. And I'm like, somebody's got to go after Phil Murphy on these income sharing agreements. I'm like, I don't care. He's a Democrat. That's wrong. 
Like it is wrong to steal someone's um, career away from them and then push them into a job they don't want to do and then prey upon them as debt and then let Goldman Sachs and these hedge funds bet on that. That's wrong. Okay. So I just want to say really fast that when I was doing my, um, my Allison McDowell's for dummies, my Allison McDowell for dummies three part series that I said, in case any of you are tempted to like, um, lull yourself to sleep thinking, I'm sure they will only do good things with this technology. I'm sure they will only use the blockchain to help us achieve good outcomes. I'm sure they won't set up a system whereby they can literally bet against our positive outcomes. And I, I said, I said, let, let me ask you something. How much have you spent of the last week lying in bed at wake at night, worrying about the people of Yemen? Yeah. How much have you worried as you go throughout your day? Have you worried about the people of Somalia? Yeah. Okay. These are, these are people who are extremely oppressed. Just examples. There's many of them all over the world. How, how much time have you spent worrying about them? Cause you have some, you have some extra income probably. If you're listening to my show, you probably have at least a little bit of extra income, extra time, extra income. How much time and energy and resources are you spending about worrying about the people of Yemen who we've been, you know, like they've just been, they bombed the crap out of them and they're, you know, barely clinging to life. That, that is how much Bloomberg and Gates and for that matter, Fauci spend thinking about you and your personal life and your family. I just, that's all. Well, I will say just to add, add on to that, like locally. So one of these impact markets for pre-K was Waterford Upstart. When I went to Salt Lake City, that's one of the places I went. It's online preschool. And I thought, and they were piloting that in Philadelphia on refugee families. And I thought, why in the world would you ever do online preschool and that you would use it on refugees? But it, it's, it's actually, it's a Sorensen sort of tied to that. And, and, you know, it, it was out of Salt Lake. And their example on their website was a young girl on the Navajo reservation. And they actually said it was, her name was Sharice. And they said, you know, Sharice doesn't have electricity or running water, but she has a Chromebook and she can do online pre-K. And so to me, like that says a lot. Like if you actually really cared about Sharice, you would get her some darn running water in her house before you shed the Chromebook on her face and data mined her, you know, like that. And, and, you know, feeding off of this, this image, so I have, it's a collection for the first social impact bonds. The first one was the Peterborough prison that Ronald Cohen set up and he set it up um, in the United Kingdom. It was a one tied to uh, prison, like reducing prison reincarceration. And they set these impact markets up because they need seed money. They're not actually... If you had to have it run in a free market, none of these things would work. They're all seeded through philanthropic money. There's loss leaders until they can get it in place to like sort of force people into it. Um, and they were using, I, I think it was either the, the lottery money or the unclaimed banking accounts in the UK. So they used this big pile of seed money to start the social impact bonds. And then later, uh, Michael Bloomberg brought over the idea to New York and the first social impact bond in, in the U.S. was Rikers Island. Again, another prison one using youth. And so I have an image here from the Federal Reserve. It's a discussion. It says Rikers Island, the first social impact bond in the U.S. And one of the authors of this includes Andrea Phillips of Goldman Sachs. And Andrea Phillips was the woman at the SIPR event, the reception where she has the special needs parent, you know, and I'm giving her the surveillance play table half sheet saying, please don't put kids on surveillance play tables. And meanwhile, she's moved on to start her own impact investing firm. But the thing about Rikers Island 
is that that one didn't actually work, quote unquote. And so it's always lifted up as the example to say, see, sometimes they don't work. And, you know, okay, so it's not not all of them work. And and so that's it's like a justification that was a legit process. And so I was able to get a copy of I think it was Stanford Business School's a report on Rikers Island. It says like re- restricted copy on here or whatever. But if you looked at the fine print at the very end, the Rikers Island deal, which was about doing some sort of support for incarcerated juveniles in New York City, it was found to not work because, and this is the quote from this excerpt I have, it says, the Osborne Association's budget was also cut when Rikers' teenage population unexpectedly fell below the numbers laid out in the pay for success contract. So let me see. So their budget was cut because the population of incarcerated youth went below the number on the contract. So essentially what they did was they created a contract that relied on a certain number of incarcerated teens being in the system. Which is basically, are they profitable or not? Right. So to my way of thinking, if you had fewer teens in the prison system, that would be a success, correct? You would think. <laughs> I mean, that would be a good outcome if you had fewer teens who were incarcerated at Rikers Island. But for the, the structure of the pay for success deal, it didn't meet their outcomes payments. So it was a failure. And that's how these things can be gamified. Like if they don't have a logic to them, the, the, the true social cost, it's not about the benefit to society is about the benefit to investors. And so in this image I, I made, this is again, part of my little video I made called gambling on our futures to just, you know, construction paper, I have limited artistic talent, but talking about engineering the outcomes and getting the data for the contracts means that all of the services have to be rendered as data. They have to be rendered digitally. And I have sort of like, it's almost like a, a still a distillery that these people are distilled into data for the contract and, and tracked. This slide is showing the securitization that no single deal is enough to make it worthwhile having these giant investment markets, but that we need to scale them exponentially. And I believe that what is required to do this scaling to securitize the massive amounts of debt that they need to run these global hedge markets is digital identity. They need to, to have everyone attached to the digital identity, which is what is happening with the um the impact markets, which is what is happening under this pandemic is now they can force everyone to have a digital identity, to have these interoperable data systems that can profile them predictably and track their behaviors. And is also that why they're so obsessed with getting tested for COVID? Because I know that they're not forcing the constant nonstop pay in Utah, pay 30 bucks, you know, from the Rockefeller Foundation to get tested and tested and tested and tested. Is it just to collect our DNA? Like, why are they so obsessed with us getting a fake test? For this virus, is that just so they can fast track the actual collection of data? Or you know, I wish I knew. I have I have a friend. She actually blogs at. There's a blog called A Piece of Mindful. P i e p i e c e like a piece of cake, a piece of mindful. And her gnome de plume is Steffers, like Stephanie, but Steffers. Um, and she does a lot of work on nanotechnology and military technology and bioinformatics. And so I think her writing speaks more towards the testing and the end game of um, the nanotech and the digital twinning. And so I, I just, 
I try not to overspeak beyond what I know, and that's not an area I know as much about, but clearly there's an interest in um, getting as much bioinformatic material as possible, both for the twinning systems and the, and, and the surveillance, I think. You know, I, I don't know if, I, you know, I don't really know what's going on with those tests. Yeah. Um, almost done. This is just talking about the hedge funds, the amount of money that's involved. This is from 2012. It's a Bloomberg article that says, uh, Queen Rania, the killers help arc nets absolute return on kids to raise 14 million pounds. So this guy who's a French, uh, uh, financier, he, he's the head of this absolute return for kids, which is working in the privatization of education in the UK, which they call their academies. And when they were having a fundraiser in 2010, again, this is for education management that they had 800 hedge fund managers and bankers attend their event. And it was a $10,000 a pound per plate dinner. So if they're not making these markets, this was 10 years ago, there were already 800 hedge funds just in the education space. That's yeah, it's, hard, it's hard to imagine that 800 hedge fund managers paid 10,000 pounds per plate to be humanitarians. Exactly. We know that's not true. It's about access, market access. So this is just, again, an image that talks about the GameStop, the big short, just to reemphasize that people are shorting. And I think I'm almost done. That Every, Everybody should go watch the big short. I'm going to do it tonight. I've heard you say it. And I actually had a friend like a year ago start telling me he's an MBA and he's like, you need to watch the big short. So it's I, clever. It actually, you know, and it's interesting because the guy who's sort of like the anti-hero, like he he has this conscience and, you know, they have these flashbacks to when he's a kid and, you know, the rabbi is going to the mom, like, I really am worried about this kid. And the mom's like, well, why? And he's like, he's trying to figure out if God is wrong. Like, he's just always trying to figure out like the morality of the situation, you know? And so and he's Christian so angry. Bale and Steve Carell. I mean, you can't go wrong, right? So yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it's, it's, I, yeah, I highly, highly recommend it. So this is a slide I made. It's just an overview of pay for success, but I think it's a good cheat sheet is that essentially austerity is the precondition. So if, if governments that were theoretically accountable to voters, which, you know, is sort of a stretch, but assuming that we had elected officials that were truly accountable to the people had sufficient budgets to run public programs, none of this would happen, right? We wouldn't need investors if we actually had, um, you know, good economic systems and accountable government officials. And we took care of the, people that needed taking care of. So we have this ongoing austerity. The austerity means that the government is dysfunctioning and it, it meeting its obligations. There you can outsource it. You can make it the investment. You have these outcomes-based contracts, knowing that outcomes and impact is now part of this internet of bodies, the data tracking. They frame it as what works government, only sometimes it doesn't work. And some people are betting both ways. They decide in the contract, in the terms of the agreement, what success looks like for this program. If this is a pre-K program, if this is an addiction program, but it's narrow. They have no incentive to fix the problem because if they can make money on it, they're not going to fix it. There's no way that you would kill the source of your profit. That's just not logical. So they create a structure of a deal that gets them the data that they're like pretty easily that they need but that's only going to probably be a short-term resolution to the problem for the people who are experiencing the social problem. People don't worry. People, people don't realize that capitalism is the ugly stepsister of communism. 
And we've got the worst of both worlds here. And I'm not saying capitalism, like people think capitalism, the free market system, the free market system is the best system there is. And it's what we think that we lived in until a year ago. But this is capitalism. The sickness of capitalism meets the sickness of communism. It is every bad thing about communism and capitalism all in one. It's power. Like for me, I'm like, it's the predator energy. Like we got to get like it's in any box of people that they want to put people in. And this is like what I've learned over the time. Like there's no one, all the identity politics, all the boxes, there's like people who would liberate people and care for people and people who would dominate and hurt people. And so we got to get all the the people who would be the liberating, caring people out and like look like unblinkered of, of what this actually is, is going on. Um, so then they get the investors, they line up the investors. Um, in this case, I put educational technology was what I, you know, I used it for, you know, buying computers or whatever to get these test scores. Um, they securitize and start trading that debt, you know, as we saw in the, the, the image, the asset backed securities. Um, and then to, de- to determine the su- success metrics, people have to be monitors and that's the internet of bodies. And that's being monitored on a phone, on an app on a Chromebook, on a tablet, on a wearable device, on a brainwave monitoring headband, on a DNA nudge band, you become, this whole system enables mass monitoring of uh, targeted populations. Now, this is what I forgot to say is these deals are set up to, to look legit. So they have an outside reviewer say, oh, look, you did good. You met the terms of that contract. And in, in the case of the, 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 the pilot programs that I was looking at were in Santa Clara County, California, which is Silicon Valley. They had a mental health one, a home housing one, one for early literacy and one for uh, early childhood. Uh, the mental health and the housing one, the, the, in, the entity reviewing the data to say if the contract worked was Palantir. Now, that's Peter Thiel's company that's predictive policing. That's like the big eye. That's scary. So well, imagine like there's someone... They're all in on it. Like the third parties make it like give it some good optics, but they're literally all in on the scam. It, they're totally all in on the scam. And so then they decide, okay, did you make the deal or not? And at that point, like were some people shorting that deal? Like who was betting? Like what was the outcome and who bet on what side? And then you start over again. And so my framing is that this whole system runs on brokenness. And it, it presumes that people are broken and will stay broken and will be minimally ameliorated, the harm to them. And what's really frustrating is within the space of bioinformatics and genomic sequencing, now this epigenetic trauma, which, you know, they're going to weaponize communities that have been harmed over time. Again, they'll say, look, like your profile says that you would be a really good candidate for a program because your genomic profile says you have a lot of trauma. The adverse childhood experiences, the ACEs scoring, that is all baked into this too. So the people who are most at risk, presuming they appear fixable, mm-hmm. and again, that's a presumption, people who are throwaway people are never going to get pulled into the deals. And people who are only a little bit broken aren't going to get pulled in. They want people with good upward potential with minimal investment. Those are the people who will be attractive to these deals. Um, so I kind of frame this, this is like Elon Musk and his neural link. And then I have the, the manifest destiny of the, 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 you know, the, uh, frontier enclosure is that like this AI, and this is for me is like, 
if you understand seller colonization is this idea of not that I'm going to come onto somebody's land and make boss you around and make you do the things I want you to do and take your resources. But I'd actually prefer you just to disappear. Like I prefer you just not ever be here at all. Erase your culture. Like that's the settler part. And I sort of feel like we have reached this moment where artificial intelligence is the settler colonizer of the whole, all of life on this planet, like the whole, like all of it. And so now we're all in this position of like, Oh, like, is it all us? Like, I feel like it's all of life. This is this moment. And it's not just people, because as I said, um, one of the people I love to death is Robin Wall Kimmer, and she's beautiful. She has a book called Braiding Sweetgrass that I'd love it if you linked in there. It's It ended up on the New York Times bestseller list like four years after it came out, and they say, that never happens. Like, if it's not on the bestseller list in six months, it doesn't happen. And it's because people loved it so much, they'd buy a stack of copies and give it to all their friends. And mm. she said that was the most beautiful thing because Sweetgrass actually, it it is best when it is cared for by people. It is planted and is pollinated in like individually. And so that's how her book went out. So, so, and is it hopeful like braiding sweet grass, right? Yeah. And she's, you know, she's a, she's a mom. Like she it's, it's from, you know, like I said, she's a biologist. She studies moss. She has a farm in upstate New York and she's just about right relationship with the world. And, and she comes at, she's citizen Potawatomi. So she's understanding like, just a different worldview, like a world, like a knowledge that I didn't have. And so I kind of find it a balm. I find that it's like, to me, that's the hopeful part is like, you know, stand for the beings, not just, not just for your, your family, not just for the people in your city, but not just for people, but like for the moss, because that's her thing. Like the water cycle is how moss pollinates, like carries its reproductive cycle. And when I found out about nanotechnology, which to me is part of this AI settler colonization that they would use carbon nanotubes and EMF radiation and 5G to make nanorobotics inside living systems to re-engineer cells to do what the being of the, the holder of the cells might not even want. It's, 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 it was devastating to me that they'd been working on this for 20 years. And in Penn, where I'm at, this woman, Sherry Kagan, just got like a $25 million grant from the NSF to do precision agriculture and like using nanotechnology in the water cycle. So, you know, I feel like in this expansion is like, this was my, my takeaway from New York is that there are many elements of this thing that are like, there's a lot of things that have to come together for this to work. Lots of things, lots of things could go wrong. Lots of things could not scale. Lots of things people could push back. Lots of things they might not even have the energy to run it or have the technology to make it happen. And so we, all of us listening to this need to be part of pushing back because if you're listening to this, you're probably a fraction of 1% who's even wide awake to this unbelievable. It's Um, a lot, but I don't think, like I said, 99.8% of the world would not want a future of nanorobotics, cyborgs, robots taking care of the elderly, like people living in closets and operating robots at convenience stores and, you know, having your kids' neuroticism measured by us, you know, avatar teacher. None of that makes sense. It actually goes against every aspect of life on earth. And so if in standing in this moment, like this is sort of a shock to the system, right? Like none of us, I don't think any of us fully expected to be living through this, like that this was my midlife crisis, right? <laughs> I did not well, this, expect it. Like I don't, I don't have dreams have this crazy. I have a lot of crazy dreams and none of them are this crazy. So. Yeah. But, and I wish I, you know, if people could prove me wrong, if people could say like, 
oh, Allison, you missed this big piece over here. That means like your analysis is upside down or this is not all going to happen. Like I would love for this not to happen. And I, I do think ultimately it won't happen, but I feel a responsibility. You know, my husband's like, Allison, it's probably not going to happen. I'm like, but well, those well, of us who can it see it have to have a responsibility to say something. We sure, can't just put it, on our hands and happening. say, oh, I know it's probably not going to happen. Sure. Tons of pieces of this already have happened. They're already beta testing so many parts of this. This is the intent and it can be proven. And a lot of what you've said, you're not the only one who've said it, who has said it, but you've, you're the one who's connected more of the dots than anybody. I mean, I've been interviewing people for close to 13 months now. I just like dropped all health and wellness. Who's got a new book out. I dropped it all. And I just went all in full time studying this. And I've never, ever found anybody who's connected this many dots. And that's why I really, you know, here I'm, I'm gushing again, but like, I think you're an international treasure and um, God put you here for a purpose. And I know it's exhausting when I reached out to you and I was like, okay, so I listened to all your talks that I could find and, and twice and wrote 45 pages of notes. And then I did like <laughs> the groundwork. Like I hope that the people who listen to my show, listen to the three. And I've had a lot of people come to me and say, I love Allison McDowell. And I've tried to listen to her, but Thanks for dumbing it down for me. Okay. So now you're ready. If you listen to those, like now you're ready. Cause the what you just got, <laughs> that was, that was the, you, we just listened to, and I'm so sorry. I didn't mean to trick you into actually giving your three hour talk, but I don't think you can give your talk that isn't three hours. And, um, <laughs> but, but it's, it's the mother load and you're, you're right now feeling like you just stuck a fire hose inside your mouth for like three hours. And I get that. I get that because the first time I heard it, even though I have pretty much full time, myself been researching this since February 27th when I started screaming online we are being lied to something crazy is going on and everything we're hearing is lies ever since I started saying that and I've never ever once in my life been called a conspiracy theorist but for some reason by February 27th I was so clear on the fact that this whole thing was a lie and a setup that I was out there screaming it even though I literally make a living with my influence online um (laughs) I've never seen anybody who connects as many dots. And so I'm, I'm going to put braiding sweetgrass, the link to that in the show notes. I'm going to put the other talks that you've done, including with your friend, Joseph, who is a gamer and he's as wide awake as you are and connects great dots and is a good communicator, which is interesting for a, for an engineer. He has such a big heart. Yeah. Yeah. And your, your um, interview with him, like the two of you are just, you're very, very special and, I'm so sorry. I probably like made you miss dinner or whatever. You and I are both on the East coast and it's like eight, almost 8 PM right now. But um, can I just tell you that like what you're doing is important on a global level to millions of people and what you're doing for some reason, God spoke through you um, to make, uh, bring to light things that millions and millions, if not billions of people are super confused about. And I don't know, if by you speaking about it, we turn this around, but we can't not try. No, I know. Thank you. Thanks. No, I mean, I, I'm trying to do my best. And the thing is, it's the more we do, it's collective. Like, I really appreciate that you would take the time to like immerse yourself in this and take the notes and reinterpret it because that's the, I think that's the gift is the, the, the sharing is the weaving into other people's experience. It's to adding these other layers. I have, I have a friend in, in uh, Victoria, British Columbia. And he's like, Allison, can, can we write like a, a paper, 25 things that are wrong with social impact bonds? <laughs> you know? And I was like, yeah, Ted, like, 
give me a couple weeks, you know, like he's so, you know, but he's, he's immersed himself. He, this isn't his job. Like his job is to do marketing for people, but he's like, this is important. Like people are taking the time. And to me, that is like deeply moving that you, people would care enough to do this work, to understand. It's, it's not my job either. And it only hurts my career and it only hurts my ability to provide for 18 employees and put my children through college, but it doesn't, it doesn't matter. Like I right mean, now. I think I, you I'm like you, nobody can fire me. Walk away from it. I don't like my husband. Right. Can, can it be a hobby? And I'm like, like if only, right. <laughs> I, I have tried to walk away from it. I try to walk away from it. And people are like, you're just born for this. You just love this. And I'm like, it, I don't think you are walking a single like yard in my, my shoes because I don't, it's not that I love this. It's that I can't walk away from it. And as long as I'm more awake than most people and I have to speak up about it and people, you know, yelling and screaming at me. I mean, I got to tell you in the last week, the LDS or Mormon church, um, and I don't know if they're one of the 3000 asset holders that are involved in this, but you know, the Mormon church, I was raised in it and I love that culture. And my family is active LDS or Mormon. And so is my husband. He comes from 14 children. I come from eight children and they came out with this page in the children's magazine that is a like print this out and have your children color it. It's a picture of a child getting injected with a shot. And it says, I can spread the gospel for some reason at the top of it, it says I can spread the gospel. So you're teaching people about your faith, but it's a picture of a child being injected by a doctor and both of them are wearing masks. And a lot of the LDS or Mormon people who saw this were just very, very upset because they've maybe they have a vaccine injured children like I do, yeah. or they're a vaccine injured person like I am, or they've spent 25 years spending hundreds of hours researching these topics like I have and, and learning how completely corrupt, what a history of corruption and lies this industry has foisted on the American people and the people of the world. And so we're speaking up and we're writing the LDS church and what they write us back is, is, Hey, uh, newsflash. Um, we've been pro vaccine for generations. So get over it and just, I guess, have your kids color the coloring page. And so, you know, there are so many people, you know, I'm no longer active LDS. I studied that whole thing out and left that deal like 10, 12 years ago, but I still love LDS people. And I'm still so grateful for the amazing upbringing I was, I was raised in with incredible values and so like, I, I never had like, like some angry phase or whatever. And so I'm, I'm devastated too. And I cannot imagine being these LDS people who are going, wait, our prophet, our prophet is out there showing a picture of him. He's in his nineties getting the injection and saying that he and his wife are good global citizens right. for getting the injection and saying, I'm speaking as both a man of science and a man of God. And you know, highly encouraging, clearly highly encouraging other people to do it. And so all these Mormons, who know a lot about vaccines and maybe their child was injured and they quit getting, you know, vaccinating their family or whatever. They're devastated. They're hurting. They're hurting. They're devastated. They don't, they don't know what to do with this information. They don't, they feel, they feel betrayed. And yet they don't want to let go of their 30 or 40 or 50 years of giving their lives to this. This is how we all feel. That's like just added added to the the betrayal that we all feel like of what the media has been telling us our whole lives and what the government has been doing our whole lives. And we realize they're really not acting in our best interest. They're acting in their own interests. And then all these people that I love, all these people that I love in Utah and somebody, I, I posted that picture and I was like, write the LDS church. 
and tell them. And then they started telling me what the LDS church was saying to them, which was, like I said, uh, get over it. We've been pro-vaccine for generations. And it's like, wait, so everything that comes out of the pharmaceutical industry under the category of vaccine, you're just for it, just categorically for it, whether it's tested or not. So this is the kind of thing that we're all going through. We're going through, we're, we're, we're slogging through this. It's hard to walk away. Like it's hard to have these, cause it's, I keep saying it to my husband cause I, I'm not easy to live with. Like it's kind of, it's a, it's a way, you know, I, I mean, if I'm a fire hose, like imagine this board, I'm like, Hey, guess, you know, like every, yeah. And, and we're trapped together for a year, right? Like we can't be none of our normal things that we normally would do, like we can do anymore. And, but we have to, I think if people understood the why, and so that's what I'm saying is like people of faith to actually ask, like, is, is the church in support of these health path, medical passports? Right. And then if they understood that the, the digital, the internet of bodies is tied to the passporting system is tied to these financial systems. Like we, they, they kind of can't get free of it. Say like, are you, is this what we're, do you know about the internet of bodies? Like ask people, because I would imagine that most people of faith who have like a connection wouldn't want to have their, mm-hmm. their beingness harnessed to a computer. Yeah. That seems to me anti most systems of faith to have. I mean, I know there are transhumanist elements in different traditions, but no. for the most part, people wouldn't imagine that you would submit yourself to becoming, I mean, isn't there something even in the Bible about the mud and the iron or something and the nano robotics, like people are talking about anyway, I just, well, they, it, but they, they also just like, people can't really wrap their brains around it. You, you can only take in so much in a day. And I can tell you that in the last 13 months, I can only process so much in a day of what I learn and I'm trying, I'm drinking from the fire hose and I am leaning into it and I am trying. But that's the thing is we have to just extend mercy to all the other people walking the planet as we learn what this whole agenda is and has been and how people in it, millions of people who are building as Catherine Austin Fitz says, building the means of their own slavery. They don't even know, like we have to, we have to extend mercy to everyone, but we also have to do everything in our power to stand up to it, is my opinion. Yeah. And people are in different stages of their lives and in different positions of making that stand. Like, you know, I, I'm privileged in that I can, you know, I'm I'm in my 50s. If I was in my 30s, I might feel differently about it. Maybe yeah. I would imagine that I could fit into this. Like, maybe I could imagine making yeah. concessions. I I can't. So then, you know, I've found that many of the people who are strongest against this are people my age and older, you know? Yeah. And so maybe that is our task. You know, maybe that is the, the, the job that we're, I think my kids will fit right into it. Like they seem to be adapting to it and I could like try to wake them up and shake them. And, you know, I've already hurt my relationship with them by saying, Hey, do you see what's going on here? And they're like, be quiet. Don't talk to me. I'm, I'm in on this. Like if this is going to be the future, I don't know how far I'm really going to go to wake up my kids. But I'm like you, like one thing I'm super clear on is that I can't, I will not adapt. I cannot adapt. I'm wired for the free market system. I've been running small businesses for 35 years and I see what they're doing. I see that they're trying to crush what I am. Yeah. And so I'll just stand up to it till my last day. And I'm going to speak up against it and about it until my last day. And they can just keep deplatforming or whatever. But like, I also want to have hope and faith because, yeah. because God made us that we have a, we have a chance against this. 
Well, and I've been doing like little revocations of consent. You know, I go and I just say, I don't, and you know, you don't need 200 people. You, you can just go by yourself. You can just go and say, I'm, I don't, I'm not doing your human capital bond program. Like I've done it all over the country that I've traveled places and I'm, I'm a landscape person, a cultural landscape. I want to see it. Show me the cubicle where you made the social impact bond, you know, like, and, 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 you know, it's the banality of evil was all over the Wasatch Valley. It was like these four and five story glass boxes. It wasn't even the tall buildings. It was like the, you know, the Silicon slopes and, you know, with the, you know, they were, I mean, they were talking about, you're talking about Utah County with all those high rises that are mostly empty now, by the way, but yeah. Interesting. Yeah. So, yeah, and I would say if you're if you're in that area, like Powder Mountain, you know, the impact investors bought the Powder Mountain, the plot did out there. Did you go there? Because I know I when did, you did. I did. I was nervous. I'm not really great. I'm such an East Coaster. I was like, and then it turns out later, I guess there was like avalanches not too far, but like I had my little rental car, but I got to the top and, and um, yeah, it was, I mean, it's beautiful country. I'd love to go. I'd love to go back. I mean, I, I know there's lots of Californians escaping to Utah. Maybe they're going to have to escape to Florida next Oh, you have no idea. And my husband bought me a tank top for Christmas that said, don't California, my Utah. But now here in Florida, there are people selling tank tops that say, don't New York, my Florida. So yeah, (laughs) you know, we're just, it's, and everything's relative. Like I'm running from Utah and then tons of people from Oregon, Washington, and California are flooding into you. That's the number one real estate market in the country of the 50 states. Utah is the hottest real estate market in the 50 states. And I'm so in, I'm so involved in what's going on that I see how horrifically in, in on this, everybody all the way up to our governor, our terrible, terrible sold out governor who lied to us and said that he was a conservative Republican and said that he cared about less regulation in schools. And then he, you know, shut the schools down and still to this day have all, has all the kids in masks, even though it's completely proven that kids do not transmit the virus and they don't get significantly ill. Doesn't matter. He's, he's all in on it. He's, uh, he's on the take. He's on the take. And so it's better that I just live here in Florida and hope that the amazing governor Ron DeSantis continues to stand up against the cabal because he's one of a very few out of 50, 50 governors, but. Just keep your eye on the simulation and the satellite people. (laughs) That's your special gift for Florida. (laughs) Yeah, we just, you know, and I just sit here and watch all the uh, chemtrails. There was 14 of them at once the other day. I took a picture of it. But, but you know what? We're just, we're, we're, we're here to make a difference. I'm not here to just hunker down and get the most little dollars and food out of this system that I can while I'm alive. I've had an amazing life and, and I raised four children and I have a very, very huge responsibility, whether they get what I'm doing or not. And they don't, uh, my responsibility my, my doesn't either, but does really no, you, it's I, hard. It would be hard to be a young person to hold this weight. It's hard. It again. would, it would. And, and we didn't know when we were raising them and we we're doing like all the things that we thought were the right things. Like, yeah. how would I have known to talk to my children about the fact that freedom matters? Like I, I, I got that from my upbringing, my schooling, and apparently that went away, even though I'm a founder of my children's charter schools. I'm a founder of two charter schools in Utah, including the first charter school in Utah. I helped, I, w- I wasn't the founder of it, but I was a co-founder of yeah. it. And I was the first PTO president. I didn't, I didn't know that I needed to teach my children those things because I didn't get it from my parents. I got it from being an AP history scholar and a, you know, a Sterling scholar. And and then I grew up in Washington, DC and my father was a, so I just didn't, like, I didn't, it just, 
it didn't occur to me. And now here my children are, and they're telling me that um, the people who founded our country were horrible. This, I'm just going to quote, excuse the profanity. One of my children said to me that this country was founded by horrible racist assholes. And I just, I started crying and I was just like, wow, I screwed up. I screwed up. I didn't know what to teach them. So I'm almost like doing this and waking up as many people as I possibly can, even though I take in the slings and arrows every day, um, almost as penance for what I apparently screwed up in raising four children to adulthood. So, you know, we're all human though. I mean, that's the thing. Like humans are messy. Like human relationships are messy. Like that's what I'm like. I'm fighting the robots, but some days it's like, you know, but I, I think as we advance, like trying, as you said, trying to find grace, trying to open doors for people to come back in. Like, I think a lot of people are so tired after this year of that, that it's easy to become bitter over, over things, over losses, over things. But I think if this is a, a larger spiritual engagement, then if we can create space that, 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 that there is redemption, there is space to come back, that no one is beyond, re, you know, reconnecting. Like, I, I do believe that. I think that is maybe that is what is coming this year, you know? Yeah. Like, let's and, don't be, let's don't be thrown in the towel. Let's get real and let's get awake to what's going on and let's connect the dots. And Allison has done an amazing job of helping us connect dots. It is intentionally confusing. I mean, the global technocrats have intentionally confused us and a, on a level that is just astonishing and, and actually brilliant. Like it's, it's evil, but it's brilliant. Like I am daily astonished by the brilliance of how they have conditioned the 7 billion people on the planet, but we are not among them. You wouldn't even be listening to my show. Wouldn't you be listening to not for four hours. <laughs> oh gosh. Well, I hope it's not been that long, but, but anyway, I, I just appreciate everything that you're doing, Allison. I'm sorry that we meant to make this one of your shorter talks. Yeah, I know. It has been, it has been tremendously valuable to me and I've just gained so much from it. And I hope that lots of people will give this legs and don't just give it to all the people who think the same as you do. Give it to someone who doesn't have the courage to give this to someone who doesn't know what's going on and needs to, needs to have an experience of connecting the dots. Like, like Allison McDowell has done for us. So thank you so much. And I'm open for dialogue. I mean, if you want to comment, like if, I don't know if, you know, you're able to share a copy with me and I'll put on my, like comment on it. Let me, like, if you find things that you, like, it's an engaging process. It isn't all done. There's other ways of thinking about it. There's, these are facts. You know, these are, these are things that I see. Maybe you see other things like let's build on this, right? Let's have a dialogue because. Yeah. So I've been, I've been texting you when I see a piece that I haven't heard you cover and I was unaware of or whatever, I've been texting it to you. And it's like, me too. Like send me stuff. Like lots of people message me and I may not always answer you back because I get a couple hundred of them a day, but like send me stuff because I really do listen to as and watch as much content as I possibly can. Cause I want to help connect the dots too. And then just be part, be part of the great awakening because the good news is lots and lots and lots of people are waking up right now. And so it's, it's great to be a part of that. And don't assume that anything that you heard Allison say, say is a done deal and yeah. our global slavery is complete. Just know that it's a real risk and you and I need to be part of the change, right? Yes. Okay. Well, God bless you. Thank you so much for everything that you do. You're an oh, absolute yeah. Thank you so thank you for putting in so much time on my stuff and for giving me, you know, access to your platform and your audience. That means a lot. Of course. Of course. I'll let you know when this goes live. Thank you, Alton. All right. Good night. Bye.